Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight we leave the boundaries of the US of A and take you to the cinema of Japan and the filmmaking prowess of one Kenzie Miyaguchi. Mizuguchi, damn it, I got it wrong already. And the exploration of Japanese folklore as told through the perspective of societal and internal reflection with 1954's Sancho the Bailiff. So see the show, stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. に伝わる。よいでんかんの。父の頃はこれだと思う。これが私の形身だ。肌身離さず持っているのだ。よいか。さあ。父が今言った言葉を言ってみろ。父の頃、牛の手は人ではない。己を責めても他人なだけをかけ
you are not only a guest now on Yesteryear Valley Who Review, but you've been on every episode. I know I'm the I'm the opening. You are the opening. You, yes, the, the yeah, opening. Like, yeah. um, <laughs> you you give everybody the warning before yeah. they hear my, hear my shrill voice. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> they hear me. It eases them into it, and then like lightning, uh, you come in. And, uh, <laughs> it's like yes. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah. You're going into meditation time? No, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> Who wants to learn about cinema from the 50s? No! <laughs> you hear the... <laughs> I, I sense a great disturbance in the force. Yeah. <laughs> that all These lives like... were shrieking in terror and then suddenly silenced yeah. by that awful voice. <laughs> yep. Like... <laughs> I'm like that Alec Guinness. Is... <laughs> yep. There you go. Like... Wow, I, I knew about him even then. <laughs> um, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Um, when I sent you uh, the pitch for this show in general, but also giving me a list of stuff, you gave me a lot of stuff actually from um, Hollywood too. Yeah. Um, but you were one of the things that the listeners should know about you is that you have become over time, not just from school, but also just in your natural exploration of cinema. Very, very informed in the uh, world of Asian cinema. Yeah. And uh, your YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery, you did a very wonderful episode on Korean cinema. Yeah. Um, would you mind explaining to the audience how you got interested in this specific pocket of cinema? Well, <laughs> it's kind of, I kind of became an Asian cinema expert and like lecturer on accident. Um, I was a TA for a class when I was in uh, college. Uh, that was like a story structure class. Yeah. And uh, by the third year that I was being the TA, uh, the professor kind of trusted my opinion on a lot of stuff. And we were talking about slow cinema, uh, Paul Schrader's uh, theory on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the teacher and the professor was going to show an Ozu film uh, called uh, Floating Weeds, mm. uh, which is not my favorite Ozu film. Right. Uh, at this point, I and like. Uh, at that point in my life, I was not—I would not call myself an Asian cinema expert in any shape or form. Right. Uh, I, but I was more aware of world cinema, like you, uh, cro- like broad world cinema than most. You were part, kind of cracking, cracking the door open before yeah, you, like, you kind of I, burst. I, I have a very broad knowledge of everything. Yeah. Uh, kind of thing. And so, uh, hey, welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, and so I went to the, pr- and I just didn't want to watch Floating Weeds. And so I went to the, and so I, and so I went to the professor, and I said, hey, instead of showing Floating Weeds, what if you show this film instead? And I recommended Tokyo Twilight, uh, which is another Ozu film that I thought fit the thing as well. And he was like, all right, I'll check that out. Uh, and then he liked my recommendation of that. He had not seen the film, and he loved Tokyo Twilight so much that he put that, he showed that instead. Uh, and he said, oh, I would love to do a like Japanese course at some point but i don't know like enough about it and i was like well i mean i like know like enough kind of thing <laughs> that i was like do you want me to put together like kind of like a mock curriculum or whatever and he was like sure and so i did that and uh from there i think accidentally i convinced people that i knew a lot more about asian cinema than i actually did <laughs> and so because people started calling me an asian cinema expert i was like well i guess i probably should become that yeah and so i just spent a lot of time like studying and watching and like getting really embedded into it to this point where like i'm not like i wouldn't call myself an expert expert at this point uh but like i'm enough that i'm teaching classes on it now and so well like and i think when you because i i've fallen into a similar realm when i was in film school and also in your time knowing me through real nerds yeah is that like I I have the broad knowledge of cinema and different facets yeah. of it, but my particular interest ended up be trending towards Gold Beach yeah. Hollywood, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and early cinema in general, but like obviously that specific pocket of Dream Factory land. Yeah, exactly. Um, where you uh, there's a specific structure and order to it, so it's easy to understand. And then once you start learning the history around it, oh yeah. So with with Asian cinema and Japanese cinema, as yeah. we're going to be talking about today, it's obviously. Uh, forced you to not only learn about the other films within its sphere, but yeah. also what the history of Japan and the world have to do with its influence or what oh, yeah. the films are saying about yeah. those different aspects of society. Yeah. Um, so then I guess one of my questions that I wanted to ask you, especially when, because you introduced me to Mizuguchi with this yeah. movie today. Um, this is a first time viewing for me. Um, I, it, it, it it's interesting. I think at the end of the movie, we'd have to do like a full review, like or yeah. like in the full review, but like a like a final thoughts on yeah. it. Because like I, I was not expecting the power of this movie that I oh, expected, yeah. and you know it, it, it lends credibility to the theory that I w- watch way too American popcorny cinema. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. But uh, when you, when we talk about Japanese cinema, mm-hmm. when we talk about its influence. It seems like the more often than not, we are talking about the way it influenced the new wave. Yeah. Um, and specifically, um, you know, I know Scorsese is influenced by, yeah. well, he's, I'm influenced by everything. Yeah. But, but um, other filmmakers like George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, they all have some do- toe dipped into this period of cinema. Yeah. But I'm curious, based off of your research, what was Japan's role in cinema? from the earliest possible moment that you could track back well what's interesting uh, from a very so just going off of like pin like a like to pinpoint it kind of yeah thing. The, the pinpoint yeah. yeah it's disputed when cinema officially came to japan mm-hmm. because of a role in cin- in japanese cinema called the benshi uh the benshi back in the early days of silent cinema uh i'm sure as many film fans know uh, in the silent era uh, there was no audio reel for any film. Shut the fuck up. Exactly. <laughs> Blowing people's minds. Uh, wow, I, I had no idea. I, I, I made movies without dialogue? That's exactly. fucking weird, man. Yeah. And so, like, <laughs> anyway. and so back in the day, yeah. like, you would have someone live playing piano or doing like the sound uh, with the film. Mm-hmm. In Japan, that was not common. You would never, you rarely had any kind of music when screening a silent film back in that era. So we, you would have no accompaniment whatsoever. Well, what you would have is the role of the benshi, which the benshi was uh, usually a man who would just stand in front of the screen and just narrate and explain the film to the audience. Really? And he, and like often he would act out because like often what would happen is uh, American films would come to Japan and Japanese people didn't speak English. And so they would have the Benshi translate and kind of like say like on the title cards whenever they would speak, they would say he would act it out being like, oh, well, this here I am, the oil miner. Or I don't know. And, uh, like, and <laughs> from that classic Japanese movie, the oil miner. Yeah, or, or like he would like raise his voice for like, yeah, you know, yeah. he would basically act it out to the patrons. Right. No, exactly. This role becomes more complicated because if you look at the early history of basically any country and how cinema was introduced, usually the Lumiere brothers or the Path brothers or whoever, yes, they would come in and introduce uh, to everyone. Yeah. And then they'd show the train coming at the station and everybody would flip their shit. Yeah, yes. exactly. And uh, while it did happen in Japan in like the very late 1800s, mm-hmm. uh, what complicated that was uh, broad stroke history of Japan. Uh, for a long period of time, Japan was under lockdown. 
and no one was allowed in. No foreign countries were allowed on the island whatsoever. Right. The only country with that this exception was uh, the Dutch. The Dutch for were allowed into the country, and th- and that's how a lot of uh, Japanese people got outside information, such as chemistry and uh, all the advancements in Europe. They would figure that out through documents brought by the Dutch when really? they were straight when they were trading. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and uh, along with this was a device called the Magic Lantern. Which was basically a projector, yeah, uh, that you would project images on, like just images usually. Yeah, it's it's basically a slideshow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, after it was introduced into Japanese culture, they modified it so that way they could do slide like more slideshows and do things. And the bench that's how the benchy started was he would come in and kind of narrate over the pictures and that kind of similar thing. to the Grand Guillaume. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, then when cinema started becoming a thing, the benchy role. Went with this went with cinema, and so it's disputed: was the Magic Lantern the introduction of cinema, or was the uh, Path Brother, the Pathé uh, Company, the introduction of uh, cinema? Mm-hmm. And so that's part of it, and the Benchy and Benchy plays a role in that, which follows which follows actually into America's um, introduction of cinema because there's you know you obviously have the Lumiere Brothers yeah. in Paris, um, and their um, their protege Alice Keblache. Yeah. Um, and then you, but you also have Edison in America going yeah. like, "Look what I fucking did!" Yeah, one of many other things. Yeah. Um. So there's like, it's almost like cinema ends up kind of being co-discovered all across the yeah, gamut. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, so with the Benchy, then mm-hmm. they were basically again like they they were basically uh, providing, <laughs> I guess, context. Or, I mean, context it, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you're providing context to what people are seeing so that they don't think fuck there's magic on the wall <laughs> yeah de- depending on who your benchy was mm-hmm. it could range from someone just reading out kind of the dialogue scenes or it could be basically inherently having a commentary track into right. a, into a film in a theater like where they explain kind of the context of like well this happens because of this yeah and that kind of thing oh yeah absolutely and so the benchy complicated that role mm-hmm. uh but yeah yeah so and so then at this point then it's introduced regardless of the origin point like the specific yeah, origin at a certain point. like by the time the 1900s rant rolled around silent cinema was a big right. uh, and cinema in general in japan was a big deal um with so, uh, kenji mizuguchi being one of the early adopters of it so uh, within the grand scheme of cinema in the world at large you know germany obviously and uh develops a lot more of an expressionist fair yeah um so norwegian cinema and swedish cinema tends to be a little bit more introspective a little bit mm-hmm. more inward yeah uh america's go big or go home mm-hmm. um which we sadly still are and mm-hmm. um and british cinema is kind of nothing yeah um uh, it's try it's america light um yeah. is is and that's not a degradation to to britain it's just unfortunately you can, you can compare like the kitchen sink <laughs> movement yes. to a lot of movements in america and they're very similar but they do have very distinct subtle differences yes and, and so. there's and there's also like i guess one of britain's big innovations prior to prior to hitch doing what he does mm-hmm. is a lot of like dark humor is uh, much more substantial yeah than um than it is in america because yeah. america becomes a little bit more pious in that respect mm-hmm. so what is japanese cinema's specific contribution in terms of a style or a movement so off the top of my head i can't remember which theorist said this but uh if he basically broke down if you look through the history of cinema in the world uh since its inception, mm-hmm. there are only three countries that were around at all times, being America, France, and Japan. Those were the only countries that had a cinema presence since the dawn of cinema, and they never left. 
kind okay. of thing. Whereas some some countries, such as Britain or as Sweden, have their moments uh, and like their decades or whatever that they are very popular, but not as relevant all the time. But they, yeah, they never really like they, we. I mean, we're not fully talking about German film today. Exactly. Like yeah. uh, whereas we, you're consistently talking about Jap- you can look at Japanese cinema and there's something that's happening every single decade. Mm. Uh, to the point, Donald Ritchie, who is considered the uh, of all time expert in Japanese cinema, uh, had a famous philosophy in which he believed Japanese cinema is so broad that you can't study just Japanese cinema. Uh, you ha- he's his belief is that you study it day by day and film by film because that's so broad and so different depending on who the director is and what the style is that it would be irresponsible to say you study Japanese cinema and it would be what you should do is say, I'm an expert in this aspect or this person or this film. Which is similar to how we study American cinema yeah. in a lot of respects yeah, yeah, because yeah. you can either be an expert, like you could be into Golden Age Hollywood, New Wave America. Yeah. You could be into 80s commercial yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And you can even, we're even into this new era with like, you know, really going back and studying the Sundance kids of the 90s. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so then, so basically since it's so broad, mm-hmm. There are basically subsections. Yeah, so if you want to break it... So the point that I wanted to make is if if you were to ask someone what is the golden age of Japanese cinema, you'd get two different answers mm-hmm. uh, and two different trains of thought. Uh, the first and the one that I belong to is that the golden age of cinema was from the 1930s to the uh, mid-1950s. Uh, okay. Uh, you will also get some people who believe the golden age is from the 50s to the 70s. Uh, I personally don't believe that because that's... Grouping in the Golden Age, because that would be grouping in uh, Kurosawa, uh, Mizuguchi, and Ozu with the Japanese New Wave types, such as uh, Oshima and uh, Seijin Zugi, which are very different styles. Right. And so you, I feel like you can't really mix them together. However, if you look at the films made, the silent and early films made in the 30s and 40s, that fits the style of a film like this, uh, right. Sancho uh, the Bailiff, the Bailiff yeah. be, uh, far more so. Yeah. Uh, and so you can really break it down. You have the very early silent films uh, with like a page of mad- madness uh, in the early era. Then you have then you start to evolve into the golden age with Ozu and Mizuguchi making silent films and uh, very success and finding success in that era as they move into talkies and that kind of thing. And then in the in the forties is when Akira Kurosawa started coming into the fray. Uh, but he didn't really make his mark until, uh, ironically, the same. I'm, if I remember correctly, I think this Sancho the Bailiff came out the same year as uh, Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai, I, mean, yeah. I believe so. I'll, I'll double verify that. If I remember correctly, I think I know it came out the same year as another big film. Why didn't I pull up Kurosawa's name in the research? Like that should have been the obvious it's thing. Like fine. you know, just mention it because it's Star Wars. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, and uh, and so and so the gold and so really, if you want to look at a golden age, the golden age is the fifties. Yeah, but uh, yeah, same year. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Kurosawa and Mizuguchi were just like, dude, let's go fuck some shit up. <laughs> well, it really is. Like, the early 50s, like, from 1950 to 1955, every year there is a major release from either Kurosawa, Mizuguchi, or Ozu. Yeah. Uh, which makes, I mean, yeah. And I, and I will say, like, to lead into our discussion, like, having watched some Ozu mm-hmm. helped me get into the mode yeah. for this. Yeah. Like, and I'm not an Ozu expert by any stretch of the imagination. And my Kurosawa knowledge is base level. I'm like, oh, I know what it influenced. Yeah. But, you know, like, well, my, w- yeah. what I will often tell people if they want to look into, uh, especially the golden age mm-hmm. of uh, Japanese cinema, is that you can start with a Kur- Kurosawa, and that's great. He makes a lot of great films. However, when you're looking at the golden age of cinema for uh, in like this era, like 50s and 30s to 50s of uh, Japanese cinema, Akira Kurosawa notably 
directs and edits very Western. Yes. Uh, and his style was very Western. Yeah. Whereas Ozu and Mizuguchi are very Eastern yes. in their approach They're to it. They're very meditative. Yeah. They're very contemplative in a way that the reason Kurosawa, I think, is able to latch on to an audience in the even the 50s in America mm-hmm. is because of that style alone. Yeah. Like, there's a reason why Clint Eastwood looks at it and says, like, Say. Exactly. There's a reason why <laughs> the Western was born out of the samurai film. Yeah. And that idea. Yeah. Um, Which, I mean, and... I would guess, like, to 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 ask you this as a kind of a follow up. Then, mm-hmm. would you say that when it comes to Mitsuguchi, mm-hmm. is that his influence takes a little bit longer to seep into our knowledge because we are, as a Western culture, a little bit more set in our ways with how we want to digest a film at this time? Well, it's it depends on how you want to look at it. Because uh, on Wikipedia, I'll pull it up. Ozu, oh, not sorry, not Ozu. Mitsuguchi influenced a number of people that have credited him as a major influence. And it's, and it's also important to note that Mizuguchi's biggest influence uh, as a filmmaker was uh, German Expressionism. Uh, oh, and if okay. you really look look at his film history and what he makes, especially his lesser-known films, mm-hmm. uh, a film that I would strongly recommend is Street of Shame, which is the last film he made. Okay. Uh, as well... He's made, he's made a couple if you look at his like lesser known films mm-hmm. uh, the films that really focus on like women uh, in modern day Japan okay uh, it's very expressionist and it's very very similar to uh, like Rome Open City in a way where it's very hopeless and Ooh. very very like dirty and very grungy like mm-hmm. and so if, and, that, and so if you find someone that's inspired by German expressionism they're probably also a fan of Mizuguchi okay uh, it's kind of how I approach it which I mean, like, there's there's shades of it in here. Exactly, it's yeah. not exactly what it's I. It's not out super of it, present but... in this film, right? But you can still see yes. that kind of grit and that dirt that like there's he incorporates. A, there's, one, there's one scene that's popping up in my head. Where yeah. We'll talk about it here in a little bit. Uh, to, sorry, just to list off. Yeah, uh, no, no worries. A few directors who have publicly admired Mizuguchi's work include Kurosawa, uh, Orson Welles, uh, uh, John Luc Godard, Tarkovsky, uh, just to name a couple. And yeah. so, but he's he's a very well comp within the cinema world, especially in this era. Uh, he was very well accomplished, mm-hmm. and so uh, to the point where in the fifties, when this film came out and Seventh Samurai came out at the same time, uh, it was established that if you asked around at that time, like uh, in like the festival circuit and the art house circuit, uh, who is the best Japanese director of all time, you wouldn't. No one would say Kira Kurosawa. They would say Mizuguchi, right? Because uh, Kurosawa was the young gun at the time. Yeah. And it really wasn't until uh, Drunken Angel. Drunken uh, Angel. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't until Drunken Angel in '49 that Kurosawa really got the really got onto the game. Right. That kind of idea. Uh, but at the time, it was known that Mizuguchi was like the prominent and the big head, which is a shame considering now when you think of like Japanese cinema, he's at minimum or at most the third yeah. name you bring up. Oh and yeah, so, like I mean, and and I think that. It's interesting how, because this happens in Golden Age Hollywood as well, but this seems to be hap- this seems to happen within every era of cinema, mm-hmm. no matter what. Whoever we talk about in the current moment mm-hmm. ends up being the least discussed down the line. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, this is going to sound like a weird comparison, but we've we're in the year twenty twenty. We've talked a lot about Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. <laughs> More than it when it came out. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like. Kind of like taking aback by it, going yeah. like, "Wow, there's so much love for this film. Where the fuck were you guys ten years ago oh, at the yeah. box office?" Yeah, exactly. But that seems to be a similar situation with M- M- Mizuguchi, because like it, it, it seems like I should have seen one of his films in film school, and the fact that I didn't 
well, one, it says something about my film school, but number two, yeah, uh, it, it it tells me that the 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 hierarchy has changed because like mm-hmm. you hear the name Ozu, yeah, before you even see an Ozu film, and you definitely hear the name Kurosawa oh, yeah. before you see a Kurosawa movie. Yeah, um, in fact, I would, I mean, ar- arguably, Leone ends up popularizing Kurosawa's um, films because of what he does with yeah. his Dollars trilogy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so so I guess within... So in the context of this, it seems like Japanese cinema has always had an influence. Oh, yeah. And you can cut this part if you think it, it drags a little too much. No, but, no, uh, go ahead. There's this... There's... No cutting. It'll be a three-hour show. I don't give a shit. <laughs> in very... In some corners of film theory... Uh, there is this constant debate about the Japanese New Wave. Uh, and Because the Japanese New Wave happened around the same time as the French New Wave. Okay. And uh, there's this debate of, is the Japanese New Wave just copying uh, the French New Wave? Because the Japanese New... If you bring a Japanese, Japanese New Wave, it is very different than the mm-hmm. French New Wave. But very surface-level criticism is that it's just copying the fact that French is doing their own thing. When really, if you look at it, if you ask the French directors who of the French New Wave who was their big influence, they're listing... The golden age people of of Japanese cinema, and if you ask the Japanese new way people who are they looking at, they're also looking at the Japanese uh, <laughs> classic people, and so they're really not copying each other. They just both have the same inspiration. So, so the people who are making an argument of copying are just stubborn. Yeah, <laughs> like that's the thing is that like they're very different, but they just have the same inspiration. That's why you can find similarities in them. Yeah, and so. and, and also like if you if you read anything about the people who form Cashier du Cinema, yeah. Their influences are like anything but the f- fellow Frenchmen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like to the point where. Uh, <laughs> so there's this idea that after the war ended and uh, after World War Two ended, Ozu and Mizuguchi kind of struggled for a bit to like get uh, some employment because a lot of people considered their work outdated. Uh, because a lot of them came from a lot. A lot of people of that era uh, were forced into making propaganda at one point in their right. life, and which so is, like, which is a big conversation within the context of World War Two. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah. And so, like, by the time that we the war ended, it was kind of believed that their time was done, and mm-hmm. that yeah. it was we're going to move on to something newer and bigger, a Kurosawa, if you will, or mm-hmm. a uh, yeah. And uh, ironically, it was the Dukash that. Uh, really like was like oh Mizuguchi still got it we got his back and that kind of and so like when this film came out like and like uh, uh, Life of Oharu and Ugetsu they they were like nah everyone watch this still because Mizuguchi still has it kind yeah. of thing and yeah. so like his his late career is thanks to them because they stood by him because they were so in love with his work to begin with which and is so, just another example of how folks like Gadar and Truffaut yeah. were really banging those drums that you weren't expecting like not, not to bring it back to what started these fucking recordings from yeah. the beginning, but y- nobody was calling Hitchcock a master filmmaker exactly, yeah. until Truffaut said, well, I really like him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's my worst French accent ever because um, yeah, like, <laughs> it's not French. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so then, so within the context of having discussed, okay, what Japanese cinema was at the beginning, yeah. what it is even at the moment that we're talking about Sancho the Bailiff. Yeah. I think it's important to start talking a little bit more about Mizuguchi, who, yeah. you know, when you introduced this film to me, I was, I, I, because I was very unknown with him, I'm like, okay, well, what's, what was his childhood like? Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> you always have to ask that question. Yeah. It's, I mean, like many children of this era, uh, if you look into the history of really anyone who was this age in Japan, yeah. they didn't have a great childhood. No. Um, 
I, I, I wouldn't say that Mizuguchi had a tragic childhood. I think he had a very normal childhood. He had like a middle class upbringing. Yeah, like it's like there were definitely hardships. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't, he wasn't, it was very normal hardships no. at the time. But one of the tragic th- hardships, but still normal, expected hardships. Yeah, you know, like sub- <laughs> suburban. <laughs> suburban yeah, like, struggles. It's, it's hard for like two white guys like us to put our mindset <laughs> into what it like to grow up in Japan during World War II. Well, but like, because um, we'd immediately try to make it leave it to Beaver. <laughs> yeah, like, so like, uh, but like, it's one of those things. Like, of people of that era, he didn't have the worst time, but he definitely did have struggles. Right. Uh, and this is so like he. <laughs> Uh, his father. I found this interesting. He made. He tried to make a living, um, uh, selling raincoats rain yeah. to the Russo to soldiers during the Russo-Japanese War, yeah. uh, a war that I'm not aware of and need to learn more about. Apparently, yeah. Um, but um, he, the, the everything goes pear shaped, and he they had to give his old his older sister up for adoption. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then move mm-hmm. and. It seems within there, his sister was sold into geishahood or geishadom. So yeah, it's it's hard to explain exactly how a geisha works in the West because uh, it's not an escort. No, yeah, yeah. no, no, no. It's it's it's, it's, it's a different kind of thing. It's and also not what Rob Marshall made with Memoirs of a Geisha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, Street of Shame is all about that lifestyle, mm-hmm. which is why I highly recommend it because that gives you a breakdown of like what it's like to that kind of environment in Japan mm-hmm. at the time. Cause that, that's a modern day, modern day, uh, within the fifties, uh, film. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's, if you look into Mizuguchi's uh, childhood and life, uh, woman and geisha hood is a massive element of it. Yeah. And uh, the you, sacrifice of women in the sacrifice. Of women, yeah. Too. Uh, to the point where it's, a, it's kind of, I got pushback from, uh, someone I was lecturing to recently about it. Because uh, really? Mizuguchi is often credited as the first feminist filmmaker in Japan, right? Which is an impression that I got. Yeah, and like, and I had that impression too. How and to the point where uh, the I can't remember her name off the top of my head right now, but the uh, woman who plays the mom mm-hmm. in um, uh, Sancho the Bailiff later had a directing career where she directed a few films as well, and uh, the mother, was, right? Yeah, and she was uh, she's a legendary uh, Japanese actress. I'm just spacing on her name right now. Um, is it can you? Tanaka? Yeah. Uh, Kinoyu Tanaka. Yeah. Uh, she, Tanaka. she had some directing career in her life, uh, mm-hmm. which was, it's, I can name you only one significant female director from Japan of all time, and she's currently working today. Uh, there are others that are working today, but in general, being a f- woman director in Japan is basically impossible. Uh, and so in the that era, she was doing it. Uh, and I think the films aren't lost, but they're very difficult to track down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, on top of that, his assistant director for almost all of his films was a woman, mm-hmm. which is very unusual for that time. Uh, and so he was very much an advocate for women working in film. However, there were times in his personal life in which he might not have been the best ally, is how I will put it. Ah. Uh, like, he he did, uh, when uh, that actress was doing her directing career, he did claim at some points being like, I wish she wouldn't, and that like, I could just work with her more, and that kind of thing. I wish she would be more interested in working with me than working on her own career. Gotcha. Uh, and then there was, there was a famously an incident uh, early in his career where he was, his roommate was a geisha, and it's unknown exactly what happened, but there was a incident in which she, like, stabbed him. Uh, like a fight happened. Wow. And so there's complications 
and he was also known for using geishas and using uh yeah like sex work type people throughout his life yeah and so what i often say is that i think he genuinely did want to be an ally but he might not have been the best one Uh, and i think uh but i also think that looking at the era of the 30s through the 50s while he might not have been the best ally in modern context, that was revolutionary yeah. for the time there. Yeah, and, it, so, and, and looking at within the context of stuff, like, because we had this conversation when talking about Hitchcock yeah. um, in terms of, like, well, what is revolutionary then compared to problematic exactly, now? Exactly, yeah. Um, and so, so, but within this, though, regardless, he is a feminist director within this respect. And I think he wanted you, to be. But somebody gave you pushback on this. Well, I, I, I opened as, I basically opened saying he was the first feminist filmmaker, and they're like, I don't know about that, and they blanched into the things I mentioned. <laughs> and, and so what I basically, and so I always say, whenever I mention now that he, uh, I consider him to be the first feminist filmmaker in Japan, uh, <laughs> caveat, there were other elements to his life that you can point to to show that he might not have been as great, but just, I do think he was making he was making an effort if it wasn't as successful as he wanted to. Just walk just walk in with a, with a big uh, 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 cardboard sign that yeah. says asterisk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like, but like it's like in like there are other directors in this time that are not as talked about that are very that are also very great with female characters, mm-hmm. but. This is definitely one of the biggest motifs yeah. of Mizuguchi's filmography is talking about women and their role in modern day Japanese and the, society. And the movie that we're talking about today like, is overfilling with it to a point that I didn't even think could exist. And not only that, they, they changed certain things from the original uh, text Yes, that, in my opinion, make it more female-driven. Right, uh, which, would, so. which would make more sense if it's coming from, this, from a piece of folklore that... Yeah has then been passed down and then written into the short story that is written in 1915. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, before we jump into the production of Sancho the Bailiff, mm-hmm. we're talking about Jap- Japan in a post-World War II world. Yes. Obviously, we are talking about <laughs> a country coming to terms with not only its defeat in war, Mm-hmm. But the cost of that, the cost of their involvement in that war with the dropping of the bombs yeah. um, on Hiroshima and, uh, yeah. and Japanese society is in a very interesting reflective period. Yes. Um, one of the earliest episodes of Shamley with Jack Hanley, um, mm-hmm. uh, who will be a guest on this show to talk Night of the Hunter, um, he and I talked about how. It seems like every country but the one we are standing in right now is able to reflect on its errors. <laughs> yeah. In in <laughs> not just not just as a society, but within its art as well. And I think with American cinema it's very hard to be reflective. And something I get from Mizuguchi is that he is very reflective of the uh the trials and tribulations and the costs of the societies they once lived in. Yeah. Now he's talking about feudal Japan here. Um, I guess the the question that I would have for you is is like how we're talking like far into the Middle Ages when it comes yeah. to Sancho. Yeah. Um, at the time that this film is made, we're they're basically coming out of of an of an emperor led society, and they're restructuring. Well, I mean, uh, it was very fractured. Yeah. It was because uh, like we start this film with the banishment. Yes. Of the family and the Lord system. And uh, and it really was kind... And I think there was a lot of loss. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of confusion in this time. Yeah. But I, but I, I don't want to speak too much as 
on this because I don't know the history of the he- uh, Heisen era. Yeah. I think it's what it's called. No, that's fine. Uh, but I know, like, it's very important to know that this is, this era is long before the era of the samurai. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very much more about kind of the lordship and kind of loyalty, royalty, that idea. Right. So, so then, like, so an audience in 1954 watching this film, specifically a Japanese audience, I guess yeah. I'm most curious about, would they, what, what, what would they be drawing as a comparison, um, like, to within their own society? Um, well, I think you could easily... Uh, would it would it be basically like reflecting on the fact of like what were we what what had we gone through prior to the end of this war? Well, it's yeah, in a similar vein, like this film is very much about sacrifice mm-hmm. and very much sticking to your beliefs uh, in the face of sacrifice. Right, and I think that was a similar idea that many Japanese uh, people at the time had to go had to look at themselves coming off a war that they had just not only lost but lost in the biggest way in the history of the world. Yeah, and it's also like, it's worth noting that. Uh, there's a, another film that Mizuguchi made earlier than this film that was, I think, in 47, right after the war ended. Right. Called uh, Woman of the Night. Uh, and that film, like many Japanese films that were made, because so uh, another historical con- uh, context, after 1945, American, the Allies kind of occupied Japan. Yeah. And were very influencing what you could and could not make films on. Yeah, that would, that would hold water. <laughs> yeah. And uh, basically... You were allowed to criticize stuff. You had to be real subtle about it. Yeah. And so, Woman of the Night, how that film ends is basically saying, we're fucked because of America. Um, and, like, it's important to note that there are many, like, a cur- like there are many films from Japan where the directors are pro-Japan and anti-America, which is a fair statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, notably, the second-to-last film Akira Kurosawa ever made was in the 80s called Rhapsody in August, uh, which was critically panned. By American critics, because it's a very, it's not it's not necessarily pro Japan, but it's very anti the way America approached things. Right now, and and what's what's interesting if if a, if a mainstream audience is listening to this episode right now and going, what? Yeah. Um, if you're looking for a form of critique from Japanese cinema that is, um, I guess the most tangible. Um, it's going to be the obvious one, which is also a series that you've tackled on mm-hmm. chewing the scenery, which is Godzilla. Yeah. Um, where the allegory of the bomb in the first film. Can, yeah. Yeah. In, in the first film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could argue <laughs> that everything else. Well, you, you could argue that Ishiro Honda, the creator of Godzilla incorporated other elements and other kind of symbol metaphors in the other films that he made. Yeah. But it, it gets weaker as I'm sure you could make an argument about Mechagodzilla representing the Industrial Revolution, <laughs> but I don't know if that's a necessary argument. And so, well, like, now, now we need you back for other reasons. Like, and so, look, you, you, you could you could drop the educator hat. We're here uh-huh, to talk like, about Mechagodzilla. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> um, but those, so, but that, but that's what I would mean in terms of like, it, like as you and I are discussing this right now, mm-hmm. like. The best way I could sell Sancho the Bailiff to somebody who hasn't even dipped their toe in America in Japanese cinema beyond mm-hmm. a Godzilla movie yeah. would ultimately be to be like, look, this is basically no different than a folk tale that we would have seen like Sleepy yeah. Hollow. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow, but like, I'm honestly going to say like a Disney Sleepy Hollow where like the, yeah. the environment is out, out of the past. Yeah. We are being led into a tale that is old that we feel in our bones, yeah. Um, but we haven't seen visualized before in this yeah. way. Well, it's like in a similar vein. It would be that like 
uh, back in the 50s when Japanese uh, were watching this film in theaters for the first time, you could make the comparison to when we watch medieval cinema. Yes. Where it's like, what was happening historically is less relevant and more relevant about the human angle about it. Yeah, like, and so, like Robin Hood. Like the Avengers yeah, of Robin Hood. Exactly. Would be like, yeah. a, like, th- like that's a tale that is based solely out of legend that then becomes operas, yeah. poems, plays, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then becomes Errol Flynn yeah. or... Uh, Carrie Elwes. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's not the ba- that that's a, just a fun representation for my soul. Yeah. That's not accurate. Reminder, this podcast is not educational and is more fun. <laughs> fun fact, Dave Chappelle was in medieval times. Yeah, was, well, of course. <laughs> it was wonderful. And Patrick Stewart was a king then. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, uh, but so, okay, so the, so this is the setup for where we're at yeah. in, in, in the context of this because this is not American society you know, obviously, in 1954 in America, we're dealing with a different revolution in cinema called 3D. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. and also that new thing called television. I don't think it'll ever become anything. Yeah. it's not like it's going to become you know more dominant. It's not like it's going to supplant movie theaters, yeah. Henry. I don't yeah, think yeah, it's yeah. ever going to happen. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but we'll we'll talk about the uh, the production a little bit of uh, Sancho before we dive into this plot because there is. The plot is very straightforward. Yeah. But there is so much intricate stuff that happens in it that it is not you don't wanna uh basically overshadow anything. Well it's one of the like I can easily describe like the log line for the film is that a royal family is banished from their uh home. Uh immediately following this, the two children are sold into slavery mm-hmm. and the film follows the two of them as they try to reunite with their mother. Right. Uh that's the very minimum of it however once you get into the weeds and the details is when things get because i just gave you a log line but i didn't even mention who sancho the bailiff is yeah no again like that yeah that's that's the that's the thing that kind of took me aback like wow the title character doesn't even pop up for another like what 20 minutes yeah, like, like, <laughs> like what is this beetlejuice <laughs> like, um so but yeah so this is this is based off of a, a, a piece of folklore that was then much like a lot of folklore in any society yeah is then adapted into a book for money. Yep. And, uh, and uh, in the in the case of this one, this is uh, Mori Ogai, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, God please hope I am, um, who uh, wrote the uh, wrote wrote this short story within a series of pieces of yep. folklore. Um, Mitsuguchi sees this and goes, say, mm-hmm. <laughs> like this, this is up my alley. It's got everything I need in here. But you're saying that there are differences between yeah, what Ogai wrote and what Mitsuguchi puts on. So screen. a major element is that they switch the ages of the children. So um, Anju is the older one. Yeah. in the original. Okay, interesting. Uh, they made it uh, a point to show kind of the sacrifices of, because I mean, we're gonna can we get into spoilers of the film? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so, like, so spoilers so, like, for Sancho the Bailiff. Around halfway through the film, uh, Anju kills herself. Yep, uh, as a sacrifice to let her brother. Uh, flee. Yeah. Uh, and we get like these moments, and before that we even get moments of, we see very quickly, and I, and in my opinion very precisely done, where we watch uh, Zushio go from being a kid to being a, 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 a henchman for mm-hmm. uh, Sancho. Yeah. Uh, an almost cruel, a cruel, moralless um, person. You see him kind of break down and then through the light of his sister is how he gets brought back. Right. And the sister's sacrifice really plays into that. And I think the making it being uh, an older sister kind of shows that 
And so. Right. Now, then there's amidst some small research that I did on the film's production, because uh, like uh, apart from what is discussed in the, at length in the Criterion. Yeah. Uh, release of this film is that there was an initial um, uh, uh, intent by Mizuguchi to try to sin- center a little bit more on Sancho, uh, the slave lord himself. Mm-hmm. But then he kind of flips over to Zushio and Nanju. Well, I think I, I mean, but now and I don't know how accurate that is because it seems like it's like you know this could be just somebody like throwing out a theory. Well, I whatever. think it's very much because uh, you have to think about why is the film called Sancho the Bailiff. Yeah. And I think Sancho the Bailiff really represents the feudalism of the era. Yeah. And kind of the moving out of that and the moving towards progress. And Sancho just represents the oppression and uh, everything bad yeah. with that system. Like and Donald so, the Trump. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, uh, you have. So the film is tiled off that to represent this is this what this idea is. And the film follows a a young man kind of trying to achieve out of that. And then as we see him become governor and that kind of thing later. Uh, you watch him try to change things, right. and you see, and it's really a film showing progress. Right. Uh, that yeah. going back to what we were talking about earlier about Mizuguchi maybe not being the best ally, mm-hmm. basically saying that women have to sacrifice themselves right now so that men can advance us for women. <laughs> uh, maybe not the best message, but it is. Uh, I th- again, he's trying his best. Like, yes. So you know, I mean, like I'm just really glad Mizuguchi was never on Twitter because that. <laughs> Listen, Mizuguchi probably would have been canceled by now. Uh, yeah, I I just... like... <laughs> Listen, I nope. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I mean, I love the guy. He's one of my favorite directors, but I mean, his personal like again, there's conflicting. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, like... and this is the, and this is the thing we're talking about figures of the past. Yeah, you know whether in Japan, America, Sweden. Yeah, uh, but but regardless of their complications of the past and whatnot, it, it's interesting to always see like where are the seeds of where ideas then blossom up forward and a lot of what happens in Sancho arguably is 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 relevant to discussions we have today mm-hmm. um and we should just jump into the plot of this film right now yeah. because i think we're 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 in for a rough ride guys buckle up <laughs> like so uh, we this the the film opens with um and and again the keep in mind since this is a foreign language film more than likely, if an if an American audience is listening to this, they are going to be watching the Criterion version, um, whether through the Blu-ray, DVD, or Criterion Channel. Oh, it's like ninety nine percent sure, yeah. So we get this introduction of like this is a story of history yeah. uh, and uh, like of ancient folklore, which is unusual for films of that era. Yeah, like Seven Samurai does not have a disclaimer in the no. beginning. And so. Seven Samurai just says, "Just says here, take it." Yeah. <laughs> like, so yeah. We open in, and you're just in there. Here we get some setup. We get some. I mean, Mitsuguchi's providing context. It is. It's also. I mean, I think it. There is definitely a point where, because this era was the samurai era yes. of Japanese cinema, and this film is notably a period piece that is not a samurai film. And so you you definitely want to, especially regardless of who your audience is, you definitely want to be like, listen, I know this looks like an older film, but this is different from everything else. Yeah. So and then and you should be like, look. Anybody who was looking for swords and fun yeah. needs to get the fuck out right now. <laughs> yeah, there are there might be swords, but there will be no fun to be had like with this film. And yeah, so. yeah, you ever heard of sad swords? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, this is a sad sword film. Um, this is a sad sword film. I didn't like the sad sword films. That's why we remade the fun sword films over wherever. Sergio, no sad sword shit. <laughs> As a matter of fact, get the swords out of here. I want guns. <laughs> Guns, lots of guns. Give me a cigar. 
and that and a hat. You, you know what, Clint? I'll meet you halfway, but you're barely allowed to talk in the film. It, let, like, me ask, let me ask you: Is there a chair that I can talk to? <laughs> no, <right>, Clint. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Lee. Stop being so fucking judgmental. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, anyway, just <laughs> Lee Van Cleef there. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> okay. This is a few dollars more. Um, yeah. But no. Um. So we get the we get the setup for it, and then we are immediately kind of thrust into, uh, the old uh, the uh, the older versions mm-hmm. of our lead characters. Older. I say older because we actually get um intercutting through time here, mm-hmm. because we first see that uh. Tamaki and her children, Zushio and Anju, mm-hmm. um, along with their servant, yeah. um, are walking through the wood. They're taking a path that their father took. We then learn more about their father. Their father was a governor of territory. Mm-hmm. and uh, Prefecture. Prefecture, yes. Yeah. And the father, he committed the uh, unspeakable crime of caring about poor people. Yeah. <laughs> Which, when you watch that today, you're like, well, say, I've yeah. read some tweets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or I've read some literature yeah. uh, that is actually very relevant. Like, it, it's very much in this society in Japan at the time. Mm-hmm. Their concerns, obviously, are not for the peasants. Yeah. Um, and to give them any concern is a big no-no. Yeah. Um, and his compassion is his downfall yeah. in the case of him losing his governorship and basically saying like, okay, I need to, I need to separate from my family to keep them safe. Yeah. So he sends his wife and his kids mm-hmm. um, to live with his brother. He sends them somewhere. I can't remember exactly where he sends them. Regardless, they don't end up there. No, they don't. No, uh, no, no, they don't at all. But he does leave him. The p- a piece of advice within the form of a line about men deserve mercy, um, and a man is not a man without mercy. Yeah. Like, you, you, like you know, you know. Um, I love the line about like, no matter how hard you judge yourself, always bring mercy onto others. Yeah. Um, I that might be not be the direct line verbatim, but I'm not something similar. Yeah. Yeah. No. no yeah. So, something intelligent yeah. beyond my years yeah. and experience ever. Yeah. But it's a very, very poignant line that you, you could argue holds a lot of water within today's context. But it, what's interesting is, is that, that that motto and that phraseology is, again, as we discussed at the top of the show, is something that's going to be broken down to like, oh, yeah, well, how much can you take that? Yeah. Because Zushio will see the test of the, uh, the limits of this. Yeah. So they travel. Um, they've been, they're traveling back from where they were sent and they, amidst their journey, they stop their servant informs them that they can't lodge mm-hmm. anywhere within the vicinity because bandits and slave traders have yeah. been, um, posing as travelers yeah. and then kidnapping and or killing women and children. Mm-hmm. So immediately your, your, your first thought is obviously like okay well then they're they're just going to camp out and that'll yeah. be it right except a, a priestess shows mm-hmm. up and offers them sanctuary for the evening yeah um now i, I henry and i talked to, uh, at the top of the sh- uh, right before we began recording the show that it would be very hard to find any humorous moments in this film mm-hmm. um but i would argue that there's one line that i think will be eternally humorous throughout all time 
um, which is like, oh, the children ate and then selfishly went to bed. Yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> selfish children. Yeah. How dare they have full stomachs and sleepy eyes? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what I'm going to tell my nephew now. Going like, you, you're selfish if you fall asleep right now. <laughs> Fun fact: in the original short story, uh, the person that comes to them in the night mm-hmm. uh, in the short story, I remember correctly, is a male trader. Yes. Uh, and uh, I remember it's uh, I, th- I think Mizuguchi or it might have been Yoda who was his frequent uh, frequent collaborator mm-hmm. uh, screenwriter. Uh, one of them decided, maybe probably together, that uh, that's too unbelievable, and so they changed it to a woman to make it more believable that they would go along with it. Yeah, because if it's a man, you know, I mean, no, but actually, it makes perfect logical sense to this day. Yeah, because nobody's got you know, if a man comes up to you, you know, unless he's like somebody familiarish looking. Yeah, you're not gonna go off with that man to whatever cabin he's offering shelter in. Yeah. So it, it it makes sense that they would go off with them. Yeah. The offer shelter. We also get a little bit more of the background as to like where what their journey has been up to this point. Yeah. And it's established that this priestess has arranged transport for them. Mm-hmm. Except no. Yeah. Priestess. Seem, seems like you can't trust priestesses. Um, you know, how, how dare this priestess do this? Um, she basically arranges for them to be uh, for the for the mother and the servant to go off on one boat and then they hold back the children yeah. to then sell into slavery. Yeah. And which I mean, obviously the, the mother and the servant are also going to be sold into slavery. Yeah. They'll be sold into sex slavery. Whereas the children will be sold into just work slavery. Yes. Which is uh, again, you know, like, I mean, if there's modern context for this, obviously the human trafficking is still an issue and yeah. you know, will, will continue to be until, until people decide to wake the fuck up on it. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, um, we're here in 1954 talking about Sancho the bailiff. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, Right off the bat, we're dealing with a piece of folklore where, you know, like, I mean, all the stage is set up yeah. for a traditional folk tale of any kind, regardless of what country you're in, you know, like dire circumstances. Something dramatic is pushing them. They are brought to the territory of Tango, mm-hmm. where uh, in this territory lies the the manor of San- Sancho the Sancho Bailiff. The, yeah. And Sancho the Bailiff uh, rules with a cruel hand, a very cruel fucking hand. Yeah. Um, I will make one comment. I don't like his beard. I think it is very, very extreme. Yeah. So the makeup for him is not great. No, uh, but he stands out. That is, that is undeniable. Yeah. He does stand out. Yeah. Um, Itoro Shindo is a legendary mm-hmm. uh, Japanese actor. Yeah. And... Uh, Freaking collaborator with basically every all of the three major directors of uh, Japanese Golden Age, mm-hmm. and so it was definitely kind of a stunt casting. In my, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to say anything that I don't know, but like I could definitely see him being kind of like we're gonna throw him in. He's gonna be Sancho, but he's gonna be in a lot less than you would expect. And so, I, I mean, what would be a modern equivalent today? I mean, it'd be like stunt casting, like Jeff Bridges, yeah, for like. Like it's like oh, Jeff Bridges is in this movie. Like all right, oh like Hell or High Water. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like <laughs> we're like oh, is it Jeff Bridges movie? Not, I doubt he's going to solve the mystery. He's not the main rubber. character, but he'll show up. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You go to the movie and you're just like, I'm about to watch Jeff Bridges be a sheriff. And wait, what the fuck is Star Trek boy doing here? Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. So okay, so Shindo is basically your stunt casting. Mizuguchi. What I would is, imagine, yeah. Mizuguchi's going like, listen, Shindo, 
you're gonna be in here for a little bit, and I, you you'll still get paid your full rate and whatever. But like you're you're going to be the catalyst for people coming in to see this very touching story that also speaks to women's empowerment. And Shindo's like, I'm fucking down, bro. <laughs> I will also publicly say it's very possible that Shindo came to Mizuguchi and was like, Listen, I really like this character. I want to play as this. That's also very possible. Yes. I'm talking at my ass in this segment of the. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, no, no, at this point, we we are we have no idea of the com- how the would, conversation. It would went be down. him. He and. Uh, the actress plays the mother would be the most famous yes. cast members. Yes, and the mother, as we discussed, played by Kinyu Tanaka, yeah. and she's top build. Yeah. So she's clearly like this is of importance. And yeah. and by the way, the children, uh, Zushio and Anju, um, as uh, children, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, like they're portrayed by uh, Kyoko Kagawa plays Anju, mm-hmm. and Yoshaki Hanayagi plays Zushio. Um, and we see their younger selves through the through a big chunk of the first mm-hmm. part of this movie. Yeah. And I think it was like about a good 40 minutes of it. Yeah. And they're brought to Sancho, the bailiff, and Sancho puts them to work immediately in the roughest of yeah. circumstances. Yeah. We also see the tutelage of Sancho and the way he treats his slaves. Well, it's, also, it's worth knowing that he, he barely took them in. Mm-hmm. Like, he, when they, like, when... Whoever found them yeah, yeah, tried yeah. to give them to Sancho. He, he tried he was, to sell them for eight pieces of silver in one territory, and then he ended up selling it to Sancho for seven pieces of silver. Yeah, it's it, he didn't want them. No, yeah, like because he he thought they were not going to be good workers; that they'd be lazy. And yeah, and and so as a result, they, but they're still, but they're. But he basically says the line. He's just like they'll have to work as hard as everybody. Like it's just, well, well, going back to their theming, he just got these two, like royalty children, basically. And he he has no value to them because they're they contribute nothing to labor. And going back to the theming of kind of moving out of the feudal and moving towards a more progressive kind of viewing someone beyond what they can bring to you. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, like beyond the immediate, going like, oh, I see the immediate benefits yeah. of this. Yeah. Um, but like something that I saw within this, as we're seeing these scenes, because we also within this moment we get how Sancho treats his slaves who try to run away. Mm-hmm. There's imagery in this film that if a, if a modern audience is watching it and they also possess empathy, yeah. um, because I don't um, claim to think that everybody does, you would see a lot um, of illusion that you could draw to when it comes to America's history with slavery. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, the biggest thing that I took from this film um, on a very direct surface level was did Steve McQueen watch this? Before making Twelve Years a Slave, it's very possible because yeah. there is there's a lot of brutal long takes in this movie of terrible things happening. Yeah, as Twelve Years a Slave has that very similar. Yeah, <laughs> like one of the scariest scenes I've ever seen in one of his movies has to do with holding on a take for longer than a minute. Well, Mizuguchi's style, yeah. uh, cinematically, is doing a. He, he's known for having a one shot, one scene. Yes. Kind of. Uh, like, notably, when uh, Anju decides, realizes in herself that she, when she's distracting everyone, so that way uh, Zushu can run away, and she internally decides she has to kill herself. Yeah. Uh, it's all one shot. Yeah. And, and uh, it just takes it, like, and it moves. And what I'll say about that is that there are many parts in many Mizuguchi films where there are just long takes or whatever that you don't realize that they're long takes until someone points it out. Yeah. And which I think is the genius behind it. He and uh, his uh, cinematographer, uh, uh, Kazumi Agawa, mm-hmm. uh, is also, he's known as the best cinematographer to 
of ever working. He's Japan. the Deacons. Exactly. Uh, like, <laughs> yeah, he worked on Ugetsu, Rashomon, uh, Ooh, this film, yeah. uh, Street of Shame, Floating Weeds, yeah. uh, Yojimbo, uh, Tokyo Olympiad. He, he, needless to say, if you've heard of a, if there's a film on Criterion that's from Japan, there's like a solid chance he was the DP. So for. realistically, this is the Miyagawa collection and not the. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, if you go on Criterion <laughs> Channel, there is an entire playlist. Uh, that's just that cinematographer and all the stuff he did. Criterion literally has everything from Japanese cinema to Armageddon. <laughs> they have two Korean films. <laughs> <laughs> One of them is Parasite. And so Oh wow. So they they've still got a little bit of to go there. To be fair, they recently added a third one. That was part of a box set that was included in other countries. But there are now three. And so <laughs> You hear that criterion? You're you're getting there. Inch they by know, inch. <laughs> they know they have to improve Korea at some point. You know, so. they've got to improve Korea. They're also missing some key Jack Benny films that I really fucking want in yeah. there that I know they could fucking get. Yeah. Anyway, that, that's anyway. That, that's that's very different podcast. Welcome to called, Criterion Cast. Yeah, um, yeah welcome. <laughs> there there is a Criterion cast. I'm sure there is. <laughs> There's fifteen of them. I am sure um, there is. But anyway, so they we get there we, we get the scenes of the tutelage. Sancho's son though yeah i think it's his son he he takes them off to the side and goes like okay who are you kids really uh and that scene's not in the book either or in the short story either. that's that, yeah so i was curious about that i was like wait 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 because this son character basically disappears after this scene what's well, implied that Oh, during the time skip. Yeah. Uh, he went off. We see him later. Yeah. As uh, I can't remember exactly what his role is, but he works. He's he has some kind of government role at that point. Yeah. And uh, and he helps uh, Zushio. Oh, later. he's at the temple. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes yeah. that's right. Uh, and uh, he has some kind of respectable role. Yeah. And he hel- and I because at one point after Zushio runs away, he goes to him again. Yeah. C- because he showed sympathy earlier on in the film. Yeah. He's just like, hey, you helped me once before. You could do it again. And if I recall correctly, I think that's the first time we see his character in the book. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and but yeah, going back to that idea, he is like the there is this character in the film that does show that hate and this kind of oppression is not a genetic idea, and that like you can work out of it. It's more of a choice and not of a matter. Kind of yeah, idea. yeah. I mean, like, I mean, now maybe this this points to my cynicism. Perhaps my first impression with this is like, oh, this is just a guy who just wants to rebel against his dad. <laughs> you could argue that, but, but but then but then I was just like, nah. But he's like really, real. He's really thinking about this. I think he definitely represents the type of pe- person who. Wants to see change, but can't do it themselves. Yeah, exactly. And, and he's uh, just like, okay, well, like maybe there's one thing I can do. And he has humanity because he he views the kids and says, "Listen, you're kids. I don't, I don't want, I don't want you to die." Yeah, obviously. no, yeah, exactly. Uh, and he does, and he does uh, help Zushio when he's on the run from uh, from from, from yeah, Sancho's goons, from Sancho's goods. Yeah, <laughs> uh, when they come to the temple and Sancho's like, squad. Yeah. <laughs> um. But so anyway, um. Say so, so Sancho's. Son basically says like, okay, they can't know your real names. Yeah. So I'm gonna give you these other names. Yeah. Which is why the film becomes a little confusing. Yeah. No, <laughs> because well, we immediately have a time skip afterwards. Yeah. So. Exactly. Now in the Criterion edition, we have um, a, a a still shot on pieces of stone, mm-hmm. which I'm not exactly sure what they're supposed to be, but the text mm-hmm. explains the passage of time. Yeah. So. What I wondered 
and maybe and if if we neither of us know this, we can just do some research and mm-hmm. then do an addendum after on this episode. Yeah. But it seemed like this is something that was primarily for English audiences to explain the time jump. Honestly, I don't know off the top of my head. It wouldn't surprise me if these title cards that are in the film were added later. Okay. For a uh, more world, uh, yeah. international audience. And they mainly so. come through the subtitles that yeah. are presented presented on Criterion yeah. almost automatically because of yeah. the setup. So that's why I was like curious. I'm like, this is interesting. Like, mm-hmm. I've never seen this before in any foreign language film yeah. that I've ever seen. Well, it's basically an intermission in a way. Yeah. It's a very early intermission. So Yeah. And um, then, and then this movie, by the way, is only two hours and four minutes. So it's not yeah. like... Yeah. It's not like a it's huge... It's not an impossibly long film. Yeah, so. no. So, but time goes on, yeah. um, and Zushio has become a dick. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, and Anju has become st- still very hopeful that yeah. they can escape. Yeah. Um, she, But she also has no real way of tangibly holding on to that hope until... Because she's watching... She watches Zushio... Uh, brand a sl- yeah. brand a slave for trying yeah. to escape, and it's an older man, yeah, um, which makes it ten times more egregious. Mm-hmm. But Zushi has become rather cold mm-hmm. and basically hopeless in the idea that he'll reunite with his family. Yeah, but it's almost like the idea of this, like, well, if I can't beat him, I join him. Well, in a way, I would argue that both of them became hopeless until the uh, and, the song becomes part of the film. Yes, so the song comes in the form of a uh, of a. Yeah, a newcomer to the to this. She was a peasant who was sold by yeah. her family, obviously, and um, she becomes a new slave within Sancho's realm. And she's learning how to do the weaving or the looming. Yeah, like one. I I really wish I knew about the <laughs> the, yeah. the, the ec- economic drive and what like what cloth was made in Japan. Yeah. Like it yeah. would help explain every detail that Mitsuguchi wants me to focus on. I can't remember exactly in the commentary mm-hmm. that's on the Criterion for the film. The film historian uh, goes into that and talks yeah. about what they're doing and how it ties into other things. I can't remember off the top of my head like exactly how it ties yeah, in, but yeah. I would ref- uh, refer to that if you're more and more information about Th- that. This, like, but see, by the time this podcast keeps going and going and going, you're just going to hear me mentioning more about that, more about that yarn spinning and yeah. less about cinema. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this will become a... What was will, a yarn spinning cast? Th- <laughs> this will become a an adjunct class with Hobby Lobby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except we don't share the same moral values. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, they yeah. still pay me. Oh yeah. Um, so, but this 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 new slave is singing a song, um, and the song basically tells the story of Zushio and Anju. Yeah. And the longing that the person singing it has for them, yeah. and um, uh, life is torture. <laughs> like is yeah. one of the lines <laughs> in it, which I'm like, that is, that's a line you hear in nearly every song from. 1995 onward yeah (laughs) by certain bands yeah of of who i will not mention their specific subject do you think simple plan uh (laughs) watched this film and then we're like we gotta form a band (laughs) so like i think they did i think good charlotte heard it of course yeah (laughs) i think that my chemical romance heard it and said like yes but what if we tried to up that ante yeah um, and then Korn said it, saw it, and said, "Like, well, we can turn this into something absolutely ridiculous." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every er, Rob Zombie's the only one who didn't learn from from Mitsuguchi because he re- learned. Are we really surprised about that? No, no, no. Well, I know what he learned from. He learned yeah. from Bella and Boris. Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> and the dra- and Herman Munster and the Dragula. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know the song, of course, Henry. Yeah. Dig through the chitches and burns through the witches and slay them in the back we'll of my Dragula. It. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but no, this song though is very contemplative. It's clearly being sung by somebody who's speaking 
uh, for the longing of someone. Yeah. And Andrew's just like, wait a minute. What's that song? Yeah. <laughs> she's like, well, it's, you know, it's the song I heard. And she's like, did you hear it from Tamakari? And she's like, Tamaki, sorry, Tamaki. And she's like, well, no, no, no. But then they mention her by another name. And it's it would appear that she has become a courtesan. Um, or a geisha, yeah, yeah, yeah. as is described. And so here we actually get images. I think she might be slightly lower yeah. than a geisha in yeah. terms of like what her role is, but a uh, similar kind of vibe, yeah. Yeah, um, but so anyway, she's become a courtesan, mm-hmm. um, and she is, she, her, we see images of her trying to escape and her getting punished, but her punishment it's it, it, it somehow mm-hmm. is worse than Sancho's because yeah. her tendon, the, the tendon on her leg is cut yeah. to prove a point. So yeah. she is limping now forever. Yeah. Um, but they see this image of uh, Tamaki going up to a cliff and singing out, calling out their names. Mm-hmm. And then it's implied that she's then singing the song. Yeah. So this is a regular activity for her. Yeah. And uh, we cut back. There is a slave within uh, Anju and Zushio's um, place in on Sancho's land, where this the slave is dying. Yeah. And she's clearly sick, but basically they're relegating to her like, well, she's dead. Just leave her out in the woods to die. Yeah. And what's interesting is is that the older man who tried to escape was an elderly man who was basically on his way out and wanting to die as a free man. Mm-hmm. This woman. Clearly, she has more years on her, but they're going to leave her to die in the woods because they're not going to give her the medicine that she yeah. needs. Uh, and so they bring her out to the woods to die in in, in that way to see fit. And Anju and Zushio are among the people brought out to carry that task out. Yeah. And in preparing the ceremony in which they actually um, they they attach her to a statue of the Buddha. Yeah. Um, which, which, which to me, obviously, again, we're laying into this uh, the the religious iconography that Mitsuguchi presents. Mm. Um, at the beginning of the film, we see that there's an a- there's a tra- an amulet uh, for the family, and it's mm-hmm. a statue of the Buddha. Yeah. Um, and it represents the ideas of mercy for them. Yeah. And so he's carrying on this theme, mm-hmm. and so as they're preparing her to die. Zushio and Anju go to get a branch to finish up what they need to finish up. And then Anju starts to hear the song from afar, although very close. Like, I mean, it seems like that they're not too far. It's more of a spiritual spirit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like there's like a, a, I mean, I guess, you know, for, for Disney audiences, it's like Mufasa speaking to similar, (laughs) you know, a much sadder interpretation of it. But yeah, Yeah, it's sadder. There's no Hakuna Matata. Yeah. You know, they like say where, uh, like where they are in comparison to what uh, prefecture their mom. Yeah, would like the, be the, the geography. Yeah, there. and uh, notably, what should be known because they don't like say it in the film, they, you have to know it. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that uh, especially at that time, it would be basically impossible for for them to get to there from where they are. Yeah, it'd be the equivalent of like in like the like eight, late eighteen hundreds, if like 
someone in Seattle just found out their mom is actually in New York. <laughs> it's like it's very difficult to get there at this point. Yeah, so you know you've got to get on a wagon, and there's dysentery involved. And like if you try to, you could try. You probably won't survive, but you could definitely try to get there. Yeah, so. no, absolutely. And so basically, and where she, they are, they're in the Tango Province, and mm. she's in Sado. Mm. So, um, so basically, this is this is an impossible journey, but. Zushio finally hears it, mm-hmm. hears this spiritual call, like this this place beyond distances, and we see, see Zushio break down. Yeah. And it's within this that Zushio decides, well, okay, I'm going to, uh, we need to escape now. Mm-hmm. Andrew comes up with the idea, well, you leave. Yeah. And take her with you, the, 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 the sick person, and I will distract them. Yeah. So she does that, and she pretty much gets away with it at first because Zushio leaves. Yeah, Zushio's able to get away, and they, like, tie up uh, yeah. another uh, person to kind of, like, help the yeah. theory. Yeah, but uh, the thing is is that they've already they, – they've been waiting around too long for Zushio to return. Yeah. And the person who's with Andrew goes like, well, what do, did you not think they would, you know, try yeah. to go back? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which – it was one of the, it was the only time where dumb nerd plot hole logic entered yeah. my brain. Go like, well, how could she not realize that? Yeah. And then I remembered, oh yeah, it's a piece of poetic cinema. Shut up, Zach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, and then I turned off my Star Wars brain and turned on my you know human brain. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's a good way to put it. It's it, yeah. It's, sorry, it's Star Wars fans, but you had to be thrown under the bus for this allegory. <laughs> it's important to remember. <laughs> that like because I've, I've seen a lot of film criticism about like well why would the character do this kind of thing it's hard to be able to like when you're sitting in your comfy chair watching a movie it's hard to be like well fucking obviously you're gonna fucking do that but in the moment like you're probably not thinking th- things but through she does the solution comes that she needs to Basically, sacrifice she herself. Sa- sacrifice herself because she anybody who t- anybody who's tortured long enough is going to talk. Yeah, is the theory here? Um, well, and it's also I think she believes that like even if she could stop herself from talking, uh, th- these are her two options. These are two options. You're either tortured or or you kill yourself. And, and, and she goes for them. And and I will say that the way she chooses to do it, it's a beautiful shot. It's a beautiful shot. It's heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. There's two moments where I cry in this film, and this is one of them. Oh, yeah. And I'm, and I'm kind of suck, soaking up, backing it up right now, trying to think of it, because like, she goes into the water. Yeah. It cuts away. Yeah. And then it cuts back to bubbles. <laughs> yeah. And she's gone. And yeah. it's like, and it's an interesting edit, because the movie has been a lot of long takes. As you, as you noted, you don't notice it right away. Like yeah. It does feel like it is being edited or chopped at a certain point, but if you go back and yeah. watch it, the camera is moving in a fluid way. Uh, it's hard to describe to an audience mm-hmm. um, who's never seen this film before, but it is very much like the camera is not invisible, but it's not intrusive either. Yeah, like it's uh, an important thing to know is that Mizuguchi's background before he got into film was in theater. Uh, this and, makes uh, a lot of sense when you watch this movie. The Last Chrysanthemums is all about theater in Japan, mm-hmm. and uh, you can tell. And like mise en scene is a big thing for him, and like he he always viewed it as like film is a translation from Japanese theater. 
hmm. uh, more so than I think American audiences did. And right. I think even most uh, Japanese directors did. Which I will not ask you to describe mise-en-scene because we'll be here all fucking evening. Yeah, like that's, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a French person. Like, get, get your French friends to explain mise-en-scene to you. Oh, yeah, no, I'll get Jacques and Renoir. And oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll you, all have a fun. You all know the classic lineup of Real Nerds podcast. There's uh, <laughs> Brad, Ryan, James, Zach, me, and Renoir. Yeah, and, Renoir. Uh, Renoir hasn't been on the show in a while. We're not sure why. <laughs> you know you know how, how Renoir is. Um, he said he saw the Louis Ma- movie Les Miserables, and that was the last we ever saw of him. Like, yeah, he was like, I got it. I'm, I'm off to see this new adaptation of this French revolutionary drama, and then he just... I think you know what I did see him at one of the protests um, not too long ago. So yeah, sounds like I'm, him. You know what? You know I'm, how Renoir. You know is. I'm glad he made the right decision. You know how Renoir. Is, you know, you good know. old Renoir. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, no, <laughs> like yeah, but mise en scène in general, like the the establishment of this environment and this atmosphere yeah. is very clear and present in here. Yeah. Like I think you can obviously with any film, you know, Ryan says on the show. Um, uh, film is subjective, yep. art is subjective. Of course, yeah. You bring to it what you're going to bring to it. Yeah. I brought a lot, I felt a lot of um, regret from a societal standpoint. Oh, yeah. And a lot of um, internalized grief. Mm-hmm. Um, not just within the shot of her killing herself, but also kind of like the atmosphere of that mood. Oh, yeah. As we see the consequences of Zushio running away. Yeah. And then we get. We get San, we get Sancho go like, what? what? And like, yeah. you know, like, and he sends his guys. He sends the Sancho squad out yeah. to get them. Yeah, uh, get them, and they um, arrive at a temple. Yeah, and <laughs> I love this moment. Mm-hmm. I love the shit out of this moment. So the head of the temple is uh, uh, called upon by Sancho's squad, and <laughs> he he goes like, "Look, motherfucker!" Like, I mean, there's yeah. other lines, but yeah. I'm gonna translate for the audience yeah. um, who is like me and. <laughs> doesn't go past the literacy of a Marx Brothers biography. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, listen, motherfuckers, nobody can be in this temple unless I give approval. And I didn't give approval. Yeah. So, and yeah. then he makes the jerk-off motion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's basically what he tells Sancho's yeah, like, squad to fuck off. Yeah. But, <laughs> but then somebody else yells out, like, I saw him going that way. Yeah. So they're doubling down on their deception here. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's really to show the desperation and that, Listen, Sancho wants this kid back, yeah. and if we don't bring him back, we are next on the on the block. Yeah, if I don't, if, if I don't bring him back, I become the new Zushio. Yeah, and I don't want to do. That. I, mean, I, I don't want to because we, we later see uh, what happens to Sancho's territory when he's not there. Oh yeah, uh, and it's and it is clear that the, everyone in this area is living in fear of him until they no longer have to. I mean, I'm I'm watching this movie seven close to 70 years removed, and I'm yeah. afraid of his beard alone. Oh, yeah. So clearly, you know, again, Shindo's just like, yeah, I got this. Yeah. Hey, don't worry, Mizuguchi. Yeah. I got this, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get the shit out of these fuckers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true, he does, um, but we find out that Zushio is hidden. Mm-hmm. Along with the sick woman, yeah, um, and the Buddhists were able to give her medicine. So it's another example of the fact that Sancho is a terrible <laughs> fucking administrator yeah. of his own people. Um, so they Zushio basically implores, and this is the guy again. This is the son of uh, of um, Sancho, mm-hmm. uh, essentially, who's been harboring them. Mm-hmm. He gives. Um, he gives an impassioned plea because he wants to get to Kyoto. And basically the, the, the way best way to sum up why Kyoto is important is because that's where the minister lives. Kyoto's the capital. Yeah. Kyoto's yeah, the capital. Yeah, yeah. So basically 
Sancho's getting Sancho is running a territory for private land. Yeah. Um, this all seems complicated, but hear me out because it plays an important role. So Zushio wants to get there to implore for to for the for for the minister to hear his case mm-hmm. as to why he shouldn't be a slave, but mm-hmm. also why he should be able to see his father, why he should be yeah. able to free his sister, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And he's, he, bas- he basically goes there being like, listen, I am the son yeah. of a former lord. Of a former lord, uh, yeah. I need help. Uh, can you help me? Yeah, basically exactly. what his idea is. Yeah. And he gives up the statue to prove it. Yeah, exactly. And so he, um, the, the guy who's harboring him agrees to kind of help him out with the letter. Zushio tries to give that letter to them, and then he is apprehended. Yeah. And you see the mortal fear in Zushio's eyes oh, yeah. when he even remotely thinks he's going back to Sancho. Oh, yeah. Like, that, that there is a scream. The soundtrack on this film is actually really super cleaned up yeah. for the era in a oh, way yeah. that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that has to do with the uh, amount of prints that were probably more well-preserved in Japan. Like, I, I try to think of this in terms of, like, how we treat prints over here versus how... It's possible. I mean, I will say that, like... Japanese cinema of that era like you will get some that look gorgeous and you'll get some that from like the same director same level of importance that are garbage right and so I think there's a lot of circumstance involved so it's give and take kind of like here it's give and take like like Last Chrysanthemums is a in my opinion a very very bad transfer Uh, but it preserves it everything but it's that one's clearly more damaged than this real so it's like the horse feathers of you know like if I'm gonna talk about Prince I've just been watching a lot of Marx Brothers lately guys I'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) If you thought that Groucho and Mizuguchi were going to be compared in any significant way, you're sadly mistaken. I'm not no. going to fucking. We're do talking that. about marks. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, okay. you, Sancho the Bailiff was just a ploy. We're here to talk about animal crackers. Yeah, like... <laughs> so when, so when, when he plays number one, do you think Chico's really playing number one, or is he playing no, other I think, types I think of there's music? A, there's internalized number two there. He, so. He's playing his own composition by Victor Herbert. Um, but no, anyway. So uh, he's he's in terrified, in a terrified state, and he actually like the the open the door on the little um, holding cell that he leaves him in, which I mean the imagery of it, like the yeah. The, the bar it's wooden it's a yeah. wooden door and whatnot yeah. but it, it has this like very like rigid yeah like style on it and the yeah. last time that i saw imagery of that nature was in martin scorsese's silence yeah. Yeah, um yeah. So the least, architecture of those yeah so yeah. It's, i mean again it's very clear that scorsese watches a lot of movies yeah. and he took them and put them in his movies yeah um and so, but the person who's opening the door, he goes like, don't send me back to Sancho. Don't send me yeah. back to Sancho. He's like, it's cool, man. Yeah. The Lord wants to see you, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and it is this, and it is the minister, that, or the, the um, he's, he's, an, uh, he's a representative of Yeah, the, I don't remember exactly what his title is, but high up. But he's very high up. And what's more, he hears out the story. He is convinced that, the story is true because of the amulet that is given the Buddhist monk statue. And he basically tells Zushio, your father uh, died last spring. Like, as soon as I heard about your case, I looked into it, you know, after all I am who I am. And we found out that your father died, but I am so impassioned by your story that I am going to make you the Lord of the Tango territory because the Tango territory has now opened up a vacancy. Mm -hmm. And you as the audience are sitting there going, say what? Yeah. Oh snap! You, also, you start getting excited for like the scene that you know is coming. I like, I'll tell you, I got super excited because so like we we get a we get a ceremony where he becomes the becomes, new governor of the yeah, territory, yeah. And, 
and he immediately declares what he wants to do and his you know his his new um uh, uh, Jedi master teacher yeah. basically tells him, He's like, whoa, 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 let's slow down. <laughs> now, now he so to clarify, Zushio wants to burn mm-hmm. Sancho the Bailiff's place down to the ground. Yeah, and his um his mentor goes like, well, no, because he has private land. Mm-hmm. It's not government land. You rule government land, yeah. not private land. And my thought immediately was, hmm, I hear this conversation a lot. I wonder where I'm hearing it from. Yeah. And then I remember the political spectrum of the last all my life. <laughs> <laughs> so we obviously the economic disparity and the the poverty line mm-hmm. is discussed throughout this film yeah. within the regards of peasants, slave labor. Yeah. And the rich. Yeah. And also what the government is willing to do to cater to the rich. Yeah. Now, I don't know how it functions in Japanese society, especially in a feudal system. Yeah. Um, I do know, though, that if you're watching this today and you're looking for an allegory, mm-hmm. it's very, very clear because Mizuguchi is doing what most good filmmakers do, which take the basic concepts and the basic ideas mm-hmm. and expand on them. Mm-hmm. The story is short. Yeah. that he's expanding on. Yeah. In this story, he has so far been able to comment on several different facets of human life and human society, period. Yeah. This one becomes the most visually clear mm-hmm. um, beyond, I would argue, the the treatment of slaves. Yeah. <laughs> because, again, I made the 12 years of slave yeah. thing earlier. So his mentor tells him, no, don't do that. Because then, because then you'll have to explain yourself and then... It's implied that essentially, like, if he did it, you would just lose your title. Yeah, it's basically like, it's like an impeachable offense, basically. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like, you just became this. You don't want to throw, this is like a last-ditch effort, like, ploy. You don't want to start this being as your first thing. Yeah. He basically just goes, yeah, fuck it. And, like, uh, decides to do it anyway. But he gets made the governor of the property. He goes there. Mm -hmm. And before that, he goes to his father's grave. Yeah. Which is a considerable distance away from where he needs to go. Yeah. He goes there and he goes to the grave and he sits there and he contemplates it. And if I want to remember correctly, I don't think the scene's in the book. No, it it I I checked in the listing, it's not. But yeah. so here's the thing that I found interesting is like in terms of like the emotional quality of this film, mm-hmm. there's a lot of like obvious moments that we would consider like typical emotional fare today, yeah. like very easy to stick into a screenplay. Yeah. His grave is very standard, but there's flowers surrounding it, and mm-hmm. Zushio inquires, well, Wait a minute. Are these flowers here? Like, like, are they just brought here naturally? It's like, no, these are from his admirers. Yeah. Because your father was such a nice man. He was nice to everybody, even the peasants. Yeah. So we're doubling down on this motto, even though we've watched Zushio go through hell mm-hmm. to a point where he had become embittered and had lost all mercy mm-hmm. and, you know, branded somebody. So again, like, he's. He's having to find a redemption within this, and yeah. that redemption comes in the form of burn this, but the, yeah. burn the motherfucker to the ground, yeah. because he becomes the governor of the territory, and then immediately he does what his mentor told him not to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which when I watched it initially, I was just like, well, now he's just being brash. But I'm like, no, this was calculated. This was all planned. Like yeah. this, this entire sequence is planned, and it's actually really fucking brilliant. Yeah. It's very much a um, this is going to sound like a weird analogy. We got a Robin Hood movie recently with um, Jamie Foxx in it. Yeah. 
you'll have to tell me about because I didn't see it. So, so I saw a little bit of it um, at the gym before the before the shutdown, mm-hmm. and the basic gathering that I got from it is, is again, it's the story of Robin Hood, um, and the peasants revolt, and you know, I, like you know, justice is restored to the throne. We get basically that movie with or in any Robin Hood movie for that matter within five minutes yeah. of screen time because we see him issue the decree that slavery is outlawed in all territories within the area under punishment of law and that all the slaves have censored the bailiff for free. Mm-hmm. And Sancho the bailiff sees this and he goes, fuck that asshole. Yeah. Hey, you, Sancho squad, yeah, take those signs down. They, and they start, try. And they try. A couple of them try. They try. <laughs> they try. But uh, they fucking fail. <laughs> because, um, and actually before this, um, Sancho sends out one of the... Um, one of his officials to try to grab Andrew mm. um, and the people at Sancho's territory going like, look, you can't do that. And even if you could do that, you can't because you're a government employee and yeah. we're private. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're under private employment. There's a great scene in which all of his people turn on him like very quickly. Oh, yeah. And so. Yeah. And, and basically this leads to the great Sancho slave revolt yeah. because they, um, Zushio comes in like a motherfucker and Sancho doesn't recognize Zushio at first. So he yeah. treats him like, oh, yo, the new governor, come on in. Hey, yeah. hey, you want some coffee? I'm sorry. Like, yeah. We don't have anything like brandy or anything, but we're yeah, all good. Yeah. Here, sit down. Yeah, yeah, and he, he looks at him, and when Sancho recognizes that it's Sushio, there's this look on Shindo's face yeah. <laughs> of like, oh, shit. Yeah. Well, how? Yeah. Oh, look at you, boy. Yeah. Oh, he really <laughs> tries to eat his hat. and uh... <laughs> it's, it's, it's very much like, you know what? I knew being hard on you all these years when you were my slave would pay off. <laughs> yeah. Now you're look at you, a big grown governor man who's gonna do your friend Sancho lots of favors, right? Yeah. Except no, because Zushio is like, listen, you saw my fucking sign. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I saw your sign. You're a legal sign. And he's like, yeah. Well, guess what? You're under a fucking arrest. Yeah. And he's like, well, you'll never get away with this. I'll report this to Kyoto. And he's like, oh yeah. Arrest this man. Yeah. Tie this fucker up. Yeah. And his slaves st- are are basically told in this impassioned speech by Zushio, mm-hmm. you are free. Yeah. You are free. And then he goes to call for Anju, and you hear weeping. Mm-hmm. Something that's beautiful about what Mizuguchi is doing with sound design in this is incredible. And you're a sound guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you noticed this off the top. You hear the weeping kind of interspersed throughout his speech. Yeah. So you already get an indication that something's wrong. Now, they could be crying because, oh, my gosh, we're free at last. Yeah. Tears of relief. But then when he starts calling out for Anju, the tears keep coming. Yeah, it's it's the dramatic irony that yeah. and we, he, are, we have to see him discover and, it. And he leads into two people who's like, where is Anju? And he, he basically explains, oh, she's yeah. dead. Yeah. Your, your sister's dead. They – and then – he has shown where she passed, mm-hmm. and then we see the the the, the most banging party at Sancho's yeah. <laughs> palace. Like, I have not seen a party scene this wild since Zion in oh, the yeah. Matrix Reloaded. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like everybody's fires, dancing, the fi- dancing. They're, they're like, burning furniture. Yeah, and I admire that. <laughs> yeah, they're just burning the place to the ground. Yeah, that, so. it, it's very much the uh, 1954 cinematic equivalent of fuck your couch. <laughs> and from what I've read, it's very accurate to what actually would happen in that era. In, yeah, which they say 
might in the long term might have been a problem where the moment that the slaves were free, they would destroy everything. Uh, and in the process, there are many pieces of art known to be destroyed in this process where like the paintings were just burned. Uh, That's a case where I don't mind art being destroyed. Because... It's, it's like long run might not be great, but I get the, I get the excitement. Yeah. So, like... no. Hey, wait a minute. Maybe that's what happened to the mountain eagle. It was burned. I like to think <laughs> during so. a slave revolt, and that's why Hitchcock never. And it's fine because Hitchcock didn't care. He's like, whatever. Human liberty is over my yeah. piece of shit. Yeah, <laughs> and, we'll, we'll find it in Bolivia at yeah, some point. Yeah, so. we'll find it in Bolivia along with another copy of London After Midnight, yeah. and we'll also find Humorisk, which is a Marx Brothers movie before they uh, had a talking movie. We'll we'll find a lot of things. You Ironically, Airbud Three will be there. No one will really oh, know why, oh but it'll be God. in part of the collection. We've been trying to find a great. Copy copy of air bud three for years they lost they lost the masters and so <laughs> yeah, no, exactly air buddies though um it's, we have um, way too many copies of amazingly preserved <laughs> like beautiful pieces yeah. of disney did a great job preserving i mean listen we paid so much goddamn money to, for that dog to learn football we are going to get our money's worth and so <laughs> i talked about um in uh the uh in in uh in one of the recent episodes about how basically the uh uh, the the tr- oh it's in the awful truth the trial scene where Irene Dunn and Cary Grant are fighting over the dog yeah is basically Airbud saw that movie and said let's make this the dramatic climax of our first yeah. movie the yeah. first of many <laughs> yeah like <laughs> like oh come here boy you play basketball with me better yeah <laughs> like, um, but anyway we're not talking about the awful truth and Airbud we're talking about censure the Pale. <laughs> and- my favorite pre uh, American New Wave film is. Uh- <laughs> Air Buddies 2. Oh, so. Air Buddies 2. Um, I, I think the Big Green is also very understated as an early, early example of you noir. Know, you, could, you could argue that that film inspired Soylent Green. Oh. And so... Um, <laughs> and then the Green Mile was the ultimate triumph of it. It was like the Gone yeah. with the Wind of, course. of the Green movies. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> um, and, they were going to call it Green with the Wind at first, but they decided to go with Gone <laughs> so instead. Selznick was just like, no, 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 too complicated, yeah, no, too complicated. No, no, yeah, that way, green <laughs> is an off limits yeah, color. You know, point, but Gone... So. Now gone though. That's a that's a that's a word. Gone is not a color. <laughs> no, so. gone, gone is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, so no the slaves burn down the property. Um and Zushio watches this from afar yeah. because his his advisors go like, uh, dude, such a motherfucking place is on fire. Yeah. And this is a beautiful shot off uh, from a distance where you see the fire kind of burning and my my first wonder from a technical level was that like well is this on a set where he's got you know some like a, like a not a special effect but yeah. like a model in the background going yeah. up at the end of the day i kind of just turned my brain off to go like no it's real it's got to be real because I, my brain is telling off the top of my head but i know that they would do yeah that kind of, i mean if, I mean, listen if tarkovsky was fucking inspired by this guy then it's very possible that he actually burned this place to the ground yeah so. exactly and it would be interesting if that was him using natural environment to no tell this story me. i mean there's a there's a wonderful shot early on where you know it's like in the middle and you see the far off distance and clearly there's occupied cities yeah. in the background and yeah. in the foreground you have people walking through the scene it's actually really wonderful because it yeah. seems like it's super choreographed and yet it seems so natural yeah. Um, but anyway, Zushio sees this and he goes like, okay, my work is done. Here's my letter of resignation. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when I'm like, yep, it, it, it's all, it's all, he, he's basically much like uh, Hannibal and yeah. the A-team. He's like, I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> well, it's, I, I want to remember, I, I might miss remem- remembering it because I haven't watched this film in a couple weeks now, mm-hmm. but uh, I 
remember, I, I think there's a plot point where it says like cause he, he's gonna go find his mom. Yeah. Like, and so he, he because his mission at the end of the day is to free his mom. He's already dealt with Sancho, so he's gonna step down because he doesn't need the title anymore. Yeah, exactly. So. And that, so, and that's why he gives up his governorship, and he goes, "I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow for Seda." Yeah. And so, yeah, is it because because basically he can't be a representative anymore. Well, not even just for leaving the territory, mm-hmm. because the only time he was really given permission to leave the territory was to go visit his father's grave before yep. going to Tango. Yeah. So it wouldn't. I mean, I guess from the from the feudalist society, like or whatever military orders that would be established, he wouldn't have to go to any other territory yeah. because he'd be too busy governing that one. Yeah. So yes, it would make sense that he'd have to give up his title, and he gives up his title to go to Sato to find his mom. Mm-hmm. And this is the, like about the last twenty twenty five minutes. We're of getting this movie. To, like the wrap up. We're yeah. very much at the wrap up, and what we get is actually very. This is where the film ceases to become early like idea of what cinema represents and it starts becoming very modern in a way that you're not going to hear about on most of these shows not because golden age hollywood movies don't do this they just don't do it the way this movie does there's not a lot of golden age films that end as sad as this film does no like i mean like and now obviously that's a product of the studio system Mm -hmm. there and japanese cinema much like most cinema outside of America uh, at this point in the 50s has more of an ability to take that swing because it's not American cinema was dictated by the edict of, you know, you got to have a happy ending. You also have to follow the censors because like while the, while the ratings board hadn't been established yet, we were still under a version of the brain office. Mm -hmm. Um, not the same one, but it was the version of the Breen office. It's the one that Hitchcock had to fight in yeah. s- for Psycho yeah. to, to show a toilet because um, that's how fucking repressed we were. Mm. But long story short, you're going to get way more. If we ever talk about foreign films going forward on this podcast, you're going to hear a lot more about introspective and yeah. revolutionary endings and those being the key reasons why the industry changes past 1968, 1969. Yeah. Um, and the the key thing is, so he gets to Sado, mm-hmm. and he comes across the establishment where these geishas or or these courtesans are held or mm-hmm. housed. Yeah, and he's looking for a certain courtesan under this other the name, name that the, the other name on. that that um, Tamaki had gotten, mm-hmm. and he goes into um, one of their houses, and uh, he asks for for her and he's introduced to clearly a younger woman mm-hmm. so he's like this is not my mom yeah and he walks out awkwardly yeah <laughs> and it's actually it's 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 heartbreaking while also like like they're laughing at him yeah and like and at first my like my brain was going like oh my god does his mom not recognize and what's mm-hmm. gonna oh my god what's gonna happen here this is yeah this is 1954 yeah <laughs> and then thankfully it did not do that not because I don't want to be challenged well I would just be shocked <laughs> you have to really think what's the worst ending like oh uh, yeah because like it's not like the ending that we got is much better no. But like, thankfully, it's not old boy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I didn't think about <laughs> that. That, that, yeah, that, that was my first thought, and I'm like, please don't tell me. Yeah, yeah, they wouldn't. Do, they didn't go that. Far. Anyway, he leaves the establishment, yeah. and um, he's just like, oh, the woman I'm looking for is older, and 
they're basically like, well, no, that woman, uh, there, there's an older woman. They, she took that title. Mm-hmm. So this isn't even a new name. It's a new yeah. title. Yeah. And so that, that woman took the title. She died in a tsunami mm-hmm. years ago over near the cliffs. So he goes over to that area and he's basically kind of wandering the area. He thinks he's basically going to be seeing the resting place of his mom where yeah. she died on the yeah, coast yeah. of the tsunami. And instead she start, he starts hearing the song again. But the song is clearly not coming from afar in a spiritual sense. It is coming from a literal sense. Yeah. In fact, of only a few feet away. And we see Tamaki has grown old. At this point, she's blind. She's blind. This is this moved me to tears because yeah. I didn't see at first that she was blind. Because yeah. I wasn't... I, something that's beautiful about what Mizuguchi does with this is that he uses a lot of good use of silent cinema here. Yeah. Like, pure cinema is in effect here because... Yeah. I only get the impression that she's blind because of the way she acts physically and not through any dialogue, through any indication. She's not doing um, pantomime blind. Yeah. Like, she's not doing... It's just also... It's the two of them together yeah, that really work together to establish that she's blind. Yeah, exactly. And so he actually... Call like is basically saying, "Look, mom, it's me," yeah. and she does not believe it. Yeah. So that indicates that somebody has already claimed to be Zushio. Well, I think it's just like she's so used to the world fucking with her. Yeah, that she's just like because she's also. It's important to note that she can't walk either. Yeah, yeah, like, she can't because of like, her tendon. Her entire life at this point is to be a her job is to be a scarecrow. Yeah. And so her entire life is her sitting on the ground, not be blind, unable to move and just kind of flailing to make sure crows don't fuck with the crops. Yeah. So. Exactly, which is which is horrifying. Horrifying, tragic. But she suddenly realizes that it is him because she he presents the amulet to her. She feels the amulet. Mm-hmm. And they, she she realizes it's Zushio. It's my mm. it's my son. They 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 embrace, and then she uh, is wondering where Anju is. And Zushio says she's with father, and she asks, "How's your father?" Yeah. <laughs> and that's when I lost it, Henry, yeah. because then he has to basically explain, "Mom, they're dead." It's a great scene where he apolo- he feels the need to apologize. Yeah. He says like I had this government, I had this position, I had but I had to give it all up so I could find you. And- yeah, like I could have I could have come to you as a lord, but I had to give it up, mm-hmm. and to follow my father's principles. Yeah, and I'm sorry that I failed you. And she, what she does here in this movie, the reason it works in this movie, and the reason it doesn't work in modern sappy dramas today yeah. is because Mizugachi has earned it mm-hmm. and other films don't earn this. Yeah. She gives a line that translated to English sounds very corny yeah. about you could not disappoint me. Like that's the, basically the, the, yeah. the intent of the line. Um, like the fact that you followed, if you came the, here by these ways then you couldn't disappoint. Yeah. Me, like if so. you, you honor me by the fact that you followed your father's, teachings means that you could have never disappointed me yeah and they embrace and Mizuguchi does something too with the camera that again seems kind of antiquated slash cheesy but what's interesting is how meditative the shot is he's on them Mm -hmm. with the music playing and the music is playing the score in this film is really good Mm -hmm. (laughs) like really really good for its era especially 
Um, cause it's not too intrusive. Yeah. It's very much when it needs to operate as a motivator yeah. for the scenes. It works. Yeah. It starts on them and, and he moves away back to where he started mm-hmm. that journey from, uh, the top the near the cliffs to her. And it just basically sits on the divide of this two of these two cliffs yeah. with the uh, fishermen that pointed her out yeah. still working away. And I think that whole is there to show that, like, despite the hardships that we all have to face with this environment, life's going to move on. Yeah. And exactly. that it's not like and I think there's there is a dark implication of this that they're both going to die there. Yeah. And that. Like, despite all the hardships that Zuchu had to go through, he's still dying there. Yeah. And in this guy, he, he's just going to keep going. Yeah. And that doesn't matter to him. So and, so, and within that sense, obviously, the emotional journey of them embracing and having each other for the remainder of whatever their lives may be. Yeah. What's interesting is that my mind was, because it's been t- taught to operate this way, mm-hmm. it really went into the realm of just like, what is what does their life look like after yeah. this moment? Like, yeah. and, and if a good movie, and if a movie is good, it, it forces you to think about that. Mm-hmm. It's not too dissimilar from when you watch your first ambiguous ending oh, in yeah. a movie period. Like for me, it was, I guess it was the first time I really noticed it was no country for old men yeah. because you're just like, well, you know, what, what happened after mean? you woke up yeah. Tommy Lee Jones? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> Did you go riding afterward? <laughs> yeah. Like, did Anton Trigger pop up and then you two had a weird like X-Men fight in your did, living room? Did, uh, you have like decaf or regular coffee like for breakfast? <laughs> like, I had two I had two, uh, two cups of regular coffee and then a glass of milk and then I went out and played with my dog, Henry. And every time I woke up, I knew my dog would be there. Oh, God, I got to go. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. You're going to stay here and listen to me talk about how this world is no country for old men. Oh, God. Well, I'm, I'm young. I'm going to head out. Um, <laughs> Poor Henry's being stuck in the car. <laughs> no Thanks, Tommy Lee Jones. I'm going to I'm gonna head out. Um, and then you walk out the door, and then it's just me with a Dorothy Hamill wig. <laughs> going like, like, what's the most you ever lost at a coin toss, Henry? Oh, God. <laughs> well, um... Like, like, <laughs> don't... Don't 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 put that copy of Sancho oh, the Bailiff in your Oh, is that Josh Brolin? Oh, I am inevitable. Oh, you're in the wrong movie. Oh, God damn it. This, I just can't... Like. <laughs> There's so much confusion. It really seems like it's a country only of old men, but all right. Like. I'm, I'm, tw- I'm, I'm in my mid-20s. Why am I dealing with this now? <laughs> Why can't it go to anybody else but me? God. <laughs> um, but that is the end. And uh, we're, we're, we wrap that's the end of this, this, this very emotional piece of cinematic poetry that... It's kind of incredible how the film holds on a modern lens, not because, oh, it's antiquated or it's tilted or whatever. Mm-hmm. The story's, you know, so outdated. It's just that we're seeing this this type of film being made today. Now, if you're going to talk about how direct the influence is on stuff, again, I mentioned 12 Years a Slave, but like most cinema is meditative when it's done correctly these days. And a lot of people attribute that to the groundbreaking nature of the 70s and the American New Wave, which has openly acknowledged that it's influenced by the French New Wave, Japanese cinema, um, cinema from other countries that don't, you know, that aren't just American popcorn based. Even British cinema Mm -hmm. has a lot of influences into what 
you know, I mean, it's arguable that Michael Powell technically made Psycho before Hitchcock did with Peeping Tom. Yeah. Um, and Peeping Tom's a great movie. It's not my favorite, but this is a good movie. Yeah. And so, like, we we see that these influences on how far a story can go. One, they're coming from other lands. America has yet to catch up with it, but they, uh, you know, clearly there's an audience that is embracing this even early on, even if it's not in America. Yeah. Other countries outside of Japan are noticing it. Um, Sancho ended up winning the Silver Lion for Best Direction at the 15th Venice Film Festival, mm-hmm. um, which um, uh, it brought him further attention, Mitsuguchi further attention after Yugetsu in 1953. Um, this film is lauded by critics. Well, it's um, also, it's... it's because he really did like a one-two punch with mm-hmm. uh, Ugetsu and then uh, Life of Oharu. Yeah, which, uh, which I'm trying to think of a director who's done the same one-two punch like that. I mean, I mean, like we could probably see something in the American New Wave, but I'm really trying to figure one within the last ten years. In the last ten, I mean, if we want to do like a one-two punch kind of thing, less so. But you could look at uh, Damien Chazelle with uh, Whiplash, La La Land, and then First Man. Yeah, I uh, would agree. I mean, I know people have their issues with First Man, but I. I it's not that I think they're wrong. I just think that they're not looking with looking at Chazelle's direction. Yeah, you could make the argument that Chazelle is <laughs> like not hackneyed, but what is what is the term I'm looking for? Like his his stuff's very obvious. But yeah. if you watch First Man, you understand he's actually a really good director. Yeah, uh, La La Land is there to warm your soul, and First Man is to help you realize that he actually has a soul. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, it's like Whiplash is for indie fans. La La Land is for everyone. Mm-hmm. And then First Man is for Damien Giselle fans. And yeah, so, exactly. Like, um, or Space fans. Or Space know, fans. Yeah, yeah, I mean, James. Yeah. See, James, James loves Hart, it. Yeah, yeah, James Hart, first future guest. He'll be doing uh, Forbidden Planet and Planet Nine from Outer Space back to back. Notably, he hates La La Land. Like, if you bring it up, he's... He, you know, like him, steam you know, out the ears. Dude, he hates him, it. him and Ryan can't stand it. They, they really can't. They're always talking about fucking moonlight. Yeah, uh, they're, they're talking about moonlight. You know, they're talking. They, you know what? You know what I loved that they brought up. You know, they really, really couldn't stand the nice guys. They couldn't. They, they really they, hated they, it. They, 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 there's something about Ryan Gosling that they just <laughs> fucking hate. Yeah, but they love Batman v Superman, which is super, really weird and strange. Like, even I don't like that movie. Well, because Ryan Gosling's not in that one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You yeah. know, they, they did. They like Ben Affleck a lot. <laughs> they do. They do. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'll tell you what they also, you know, they can't stand. They absolutely cannot stand. Um, is is Daniel Radcliffe? But oh, they of love Robert Pence, and they really love Good Time. Well, it's one of those things. It's I don't know. Since since 2014, James has been saying we need a nerdy Lex Luthor. We need <laughs> like someone like that kind of to interpret that kind of character. James has been on that for years, and he and he said, "Look to the social network. That's Look where you'll find network. your answer." I mean, he was. I mean, to be fair, he was always saying that it should be Andrew Garfield. Yes, Andrew Garfield should go from Spider-Man to Lex. They, he even, he's been saying that all along. Yeah, and so he was a little disappointed when they got uh, Jesse Eisenberg to do it. But he, and he was he, watched the listen to the episodes. He was very skeptical of Batman Superman for a while. He thought, I don't know if this is gonna work. I don't know if, but then lo and behold, the film came out. He fucking 
loved it. Yeah. You know what James also was saying? He's like, you know what? I really want Jordan Peele's follow-up movie to be even better than the first one. And he got his wish. He, he did. really he did. did. He, he really did. did. Yeah. You know, I I wasn't a huge fan, but James loved it. James loved it. Yeah. If, I mean, if anybody's listening to this right now, they know we're full of shit at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to break this up because I'm not going to throw us under the bus for a joke. <laughs> I love that movie. I don't care what anybody fucking says. Um, you hear me, everybody. <laughs> You fucking weird complainers. Anyway, back to Sancho, the bailiff. Um, the uh, it's interesting. Like the, the the reviews of the era, I wasn't able to find that many. But there's a lot of like contemporary reviews for the, or, like modern reviews for this yeah. one. So uh, Anthony Lane uh, from the New Yorker wrote uh, a profile on Mitsuguchi and uh, 2006. And he says, I have seen Sancho only once a decade ago, emerging from the cinema of a bro- the cinema, a broken man, but calm in my conviction that I had never seen anything better. I have not dared watched it again, reluctant to ruin the spell, but also the human heart was not designed to weather such an ordeal. That's uh, I, the only thing I don't agree with on that is why would you not rewatch it? Because I want to rewatch this movie. Like it's not to torture myself. I kind of want to revel in the command that Mitsuguchi has with this camera. It is kind of remarkable that I've never seen a, one of his movies before. One thing I will say, if you want to rewatch it, uh, the cinematography, notice the framing of how nature plays into it. Yep. And there's a lot to that in terms of like how he frames nature, how he frames, especially with the suicide scene of the, like the very bright water being surrounded by these dark trees. Yeah. That idea. And, and actually there's an interesting thing that we hadn't, I hadn't talked about with the direction of this film. There's a lot about the positions of power represented physically. Um, Generally, if one person is standing, another is sitting Mm -hmm. and rarely does the position shift. Yeah. And, on the Criterion, there's a um, a piece with a contemporary critic of Japanese cinema who explains about the power dynamics within this and how it pertains to the struggles of women yeah. in that. And it seems like within this movie, we should have talked a lot more about women's uh, the women's role in this film. So I guess we, we can talk a little bit about it now within the context of just like this film really does show women taking much more command than yeah. you'd expect. Now... The difference being is is that within this is still predominantly is the story of a man's yeah. realization of the sacrifice and the upholding of your beliefs and the commitment to your faith yeah. that is very uh, – uh, it proves to be in a certain sense ironic or yeah. deconstructed to the point of um, – things mocking Zushio throughout the movie. Yeah, no way. Um, through circumstance, fate, yeah. etc. And uh, something that I found interesting is like in, in the way that women play into it, like it's almost on the surface it seems like they're subjected to the side or utilized for yeah. important dramatic moments that so they're more like tools less than characters. Yeah. But Anju as a character, we don't we you don't get much of her because she kills herself, but the scene where she hears the song mm-hmm. and then is inquiring about the song and then also talking to Zushio later on, oh, yeah. we get a lot of her character in there and like what, how she processes the world. Yeah. And the, really the reality is, is that she was a young, young child when she was taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, 
her knowledge base of this has never been anything but hope. Mm-hmm. But Zushi was only already a little bit older. It's established that he's like 23 and yeah. she's 18. Yeah. Uh, so like he's seen more of life prior to this. Mm-hmm. So he's seen a larger arc yeah. to this tragedy than yeah. she has. It's the theming of, of woman's place in society in Japan is a massive theme for Mizuguchi. Right. This film is not a perfect representation because it's not as heavy. But it's a good uh, gateway, I'd argue, for people to get into it. I would argue as well. It. Yeah. Because like, from this, you can go into uh, Street of Shame, uh, Utaro and His Five Women, mm-hmm. uh, Woman of the Night, uh, Life of Oharu. Uh, and, and basically, you would get then the full cycle of yeah. his, his the way the he... he can, yeah, and... I, and, you, guy on. and you, if you're talking about Streets of Crime, which is his last film, I, mm-hmm. the, the implication that I'm getting, apart from the fact that we'd have to do a follow-up episode on this mm-hmm. immediately, is, is the fact that um, he's then shifting the focus over to the modern lens, yeah. which I would be fascinated to see how it pertains to women in Japan in a post-war world versus what we would see today. Because as you said at the top of the show, which is something that's stuck in my head since the past two hours have passed, is that it's still very rare for women directors to be in Japan. Uh, Uh, And I find that incredibly fascinating within the spectrum of the current conversation we're having about what women are, um, what, what barriers women have to overcome here in this country when you, I mean, this is not to give ourselves credit by any stretch of the imagination because we are still very, very bad at this, but it is interesting with you saying that, how much we have come forward in this country. Mm-hmm. However, it's also another indicator of like, well, look to everywhere else and understand that this fight is not over, that mm-hmm. women are still supplanted in this industry and many industries all across, you know, different different types of work where, you know, you they they have to work harder than we would as men. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, and it, it's one of the reasons why I don't like have much ambition. Cause I'm just like, yeah, we had our time. Yeah. <laughs> Henry, uh, Henry, you and I can just talk about movies. We need to let them make them because course. they're going to make 10 times more interesting films than we will. Uh, um, the actress, I, I should, or sorry, the director, I should say, uh, Naomi, Ka, Naomi Kawase is, uh, Naomi Kawase. The, uh, sh- the, I, I don't know if it'll be nominated. The J- Japan's entry for best foreign film this year is her new film. And so maybe that'll be nominated. Who knows? We'll find out. What's her, what the what's the film's name? We'll look out for. <sighs> Let me look it up real quick. Uh, if one that I'd recommend by her that I think is a good instruction for her is called Sweet Bean, which came out a couple years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, that came to, that came here too. So it's not like yeah. we didn't. Sweet yeah. Bean is a good one that I would check out for from her if you want to check out more uh, right. her stuff. Her new film is called and the reason True I Mothers. Have... True Mothers is what it's called. True Mothers. Yeah. Okay. So the look out, look out for that film and watch it. You don't have to vote for it if you're in the Academy. I don't give a shit what you do. Clearly, you didn't watch The Irishman correctly, so whatever. <laughs> but <laughs> I won't I won't drop that. <laughs> I got the Criterion, yeah. and it's awesome. It's, it looks really nice. Oh, oh, God, yeah. I'll show it to you after yeah. we're done. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, but no. Um, uh, again, and we'll go back to another modern critique of the film. Like Jim Everson wrote for RogerDeber.com. Um, he said, I, I don't believe there's ever been a greater motion picture in any language. This one sees life and memory as a creek flowing into a lake, out into a river, and to the sea. Um, I agree with it, but I will say that I've known Henry for five years, and this somehow is the most pretentious thing I've ever read in my yeah. life. <laughs> I mean, I will say I'm a big fan of 
Kenji Mizuguchi, but this is not even my favorite Kenji Mizuguchi <laughs> film. And so, like, Jim, Emer- Jim Emerson and you will have to duke it out over Street 50 of cups. Shame and Crucified Lovers oh, is you know the two what? I recommend. You two could have an internet fight. Oh, we could. <laughs> oh, a Twitter battle. I can't wait for them to make a uh, documentary 50 years from now called Jarvis slash whatever his last name is. <laughs> Jar- so, Jarvis slash Emerson? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like Frost Nixon. Yeah, it's just, and the entire documentary just follows one argument we had on air. And so, like, <laughs> Can I... <laughs> Can I be the Sam Rockwell? By all means. So. <laughs> Sam Rockwell and Kevin Bacon. There you go. I'll play <laughs> both sides. You got it. Um, but anyway, so uh, this also, um, in the better, British Film Institute in 2012 did a sight and sound poll, as they usually do, because mm. they, they do this. Yeah. Um, and uh, it came in at 59th with 25 critics voting for this film. This film has still endured to this day. There's been a stage production of this film. Um, produced by Robert Robert Michael Geisler and John Roberto, um, who worked on Streamers and The Thin Red Line. Yeah. And they got Terrence Malick to write a stage play based on Sancho the Bailiff. That was interesting. And uh, it was directed by Andres Waja, um, who, if you, if, if you don't know, um, he was a Polish film and theater director in he uh, amongst the films he did are a generation canal and ashes and diamonds. Another director that we'll have to explore because a lot of his um, uh, films, especially this trilogy of war films that I just mentioned off the top uh, take place. were made in 1955, 56 and 58. Um, so, uh, but it, it's interesting that uh this this thing was commissioned to be produced in the spring of 1994, and then the plans to put it on Broadway were postponed indefinitely. Yeah. So we've never seen Sancho the Bailiff on stage. I can't imagine how this would work on stage. I, <laughs> I mean, like, I first of all, how do you replace Shindo? Like, yeah. that, 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 to me, is the ultimate crime. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, I, some people gave you know, the producer shit for not having somebody like a Zero Mustill or a Gene Wilder in the mm-hmm. role. Let's face it, did that, those were a natural equivalent. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't top Shindo. Of man. course. You know, only he can pull off that beard. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and as we set up at the top, you know, you can find this film on Criterion. And, uh, you know, and just to, as we're wrapping it up, I, I wanted to bring up the fact like, you know, a lot of the pitch on this show has been to discuss Golden Age Hollywood mm-hmm. because that's the natural attraction to this. But I said at the top of the first episode, and I'll say it again, we we're talking about early cinema as well. We're talking about uh, cinema pre-1968 and cinema is a world thing. It's not an American thing. Yeah. And I think it is important to understand where other countries are. Um, and what they're bringing to cinema at this point, because a lot of why Hollywood dies has to do with films like this being made Mm -hmm. within the sphere of Hollywood still essentially operating on its normal motifs. They're, they're switching from, uh, the factory mentality into let's make cinema scope. Let's make yeah. Bible epics. Get yeah. give Cecil B. DeMille jobs again. Yeah. Um, and stuff like that. But they but they are missing the fact that, uh, theaters in the, in, in America are showing art house fair of this, yeah. uh, of this nature in their theaters. These films are also showing on television. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how often Japanese cinema is being shown on television, but if you listen to Martin Scorsese talk in, Amongst other things, journey through American cinema and mm-hmm. different interviews that he's discussed, he talks about seeing Rossellini films yeah. on television. Yeah, which first of all sounds insane yeah. <laughs> to think, but it would make sense if 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 like let's say like an like a um, 
like a, a UHF station, like a, like a standard yeah. station, like yeah. an early television, still trying to find product. They're buying libraries of films all across the place. Oh, yeah. Rossellini's clearly something you can grab off the yeah. shelf yeah. from a public like source. Yeah. Um, again, this television is also where people start seeing th- films from the earlier eras and whatnot. Yeah. So everything's fair game at this point, and especially when it comes to Japanese cinema and international cinema in general, I think it is important to look at like, okay, these storytelling techniques are being innovated while the other ones are sticking to a tried and true formula that has worked for them and has, there's no indication that it would fail. Yeah, There really is no indication beyond television's existence. That's yeah. the biggest threat to its existence. Yeah. What, 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 what I think something like Sancho the Bailiff uh, predicts, as well as other films that you and I will talk about or me and Jack Hanley will talk about yeah. or Marshall Rosales will yeah. talk about, is that a lot of these films are predicting where not necessarily just America, but the world is heading in terms of a big disillusionment, yeah. which then leads to cultural revolution, to uh, the counterculture of the 60s, yeah. uh, and then ends up leading eventually to where we end up with the different respective new waves, um, specifically in America. And uh, depending on who you believe in the Japanese cinema world, uh, they're, they're new wave. Yeah. <laughs> because obviously uh, Henry has some people he has to fight <laughs> still yeah. on, the, on this subject. Um, so, Henry, to wrap it up, I, w- I would want to ask, like, so if you were to try to sell Sancho the Bailiff to somebody who might be um, – like wanting to get into cinema period or like early cinema period. Like mm-hmm. how would you like, uh, how would you go about pitching them on this film beyond just a log line or anything like that? Like what, what would you, what would be your pitch? <laughs> well, when people look at Japanese cinema, they look at Kurosawa mm-hmm. and they think that as like the main basis kind of thing. When in reality, Ozu and Mizuguchi have had a far larger impact on cinema today than, than uh, specifically in Japan. Right. Uh, because you get like your Kurosawa fans in America who make Star Wars and all that kind of stuff, but there is I a know lot what of I did. <laughs> there's a lot of elements in uh, Star Wars that are from Ozu or Mizuguchi films, yep, and that are implemented that way as well. And so it really is like if you look at it, a lot of cinema stems from Japan mm-hmm. uh, in terms of inspiration, and so I think. It's one of those things where it's like you always, whenever you find something that you really like, like a movie, a piece of art, a director, whoever you want, you always want to check who inspired them. Mm-hmm. If you, because if you trace that back, you will find kind of you yourself can be inspired based off that idea. Yep. And I think Mizuguchi is a great, is a often overlooked director from this era that should not be. Yeah. So. And and furthermore, and it, it stems to the reason that this show even exists is like. I'm working off of the assumption that everybody already knows the things that they love. Yeah. And the only thing that I we can do within this is like, okay, if we find a film, let's talk about it, and then let's really dig into it. Where are you mm-hmm. seeing this today? So where would you see Sancho the most within modern cinema, say, of the last 10, 20 years? If you had to think about it. like, Could you clarify the question a little bit more? So like, if, like it, whether it's through... Um, Mizuguchi's technique Mm -hmm. storytelling or the story that we're seeing in general Mm -hmm. Um, I know I mentioned a couple of examples like uh, 12 Years a Slave Mm -hmm. as being the key one but like where do you think you see Mizuguchi's influence or even the influence of Sancho the Bailiff as a film itself in modern cinema so how I often describe it is that if you look at the three directors of the golden age Mm -hmm. you have Akira Kurosawa who directs and tells story through action Mm -hmm. you have Ozu who tells story through human connection Mm -hmm. and you have Mizuguchi who tells uh 
story through spiritual connection. Mm-hmm. Notoriously, if you've not seen Ugetsu, uh, spoilers a little bit for Ugetsu, mm-hmm. that film revolves around a guy who accidentally fucks a ghost. Um, and so... Accidentally? Like, yeah. Um, and, um, <laughs> um, and so... If you look at like Japanese cinema today, because like, you have people like uh, the uh, Kawasa, who we mentioned earlier, as yeah. well as uh, Koreeda, who won uh, the Palm a couple years, uh, a year or two ago, mm-hmm. and was nominated for Best Foreign Film a couple years ago. Uh, they all kind of point to Ozu and Mizuguchi as their main influence. Okay, and so I think uh, whereas Kurosawa might be very influential in the West, uh, in the East, those two are still basically the reigning kings so then you would say that the like the, so within the context of japanese cinema it has definitely continued on within japanese cinema itself yeah. which is which is encouraging it's yeah. a very encouraging thought one thing that ryan often asks me on the podcast is mm-hmm. why do you watch foreign films? like why do you seek out foreign films and that kind of thing or mm-hmm. our house and that kind of thing yeah and why i do it is because it gives you an eye into another culture mm-hmm. like we said earlier it's hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of what it was like for people that were living in that era. Yeah. But what makes film so great is that it allows there to be at least a window. Yeah. And, and there's, and it allows, like I argue it's a tool for empathy as well. Yeah. And especially when you watch a film from a different land and a different culture, you are being put into their position to understand how, not just how they view the world that they are in, but also how they might view us. Yeah. Um, I've always pointed to, which is why I've never discounted a foreign film mm-hmm. as a thing that I can watch, mm-hmm. is ultimately because, well, it is a wonderful tool to understand how society is viewed through different lenses. Yeah. And also, again, how it might be pointed towards us. Yeah. And I, I got to tell you, when I watched this film, I don't know if Mizuguchi was fully aware of the Civil War yeah. <laughs> and why why it was fought. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's very thought-provoking to watch it today with the discussions that we've been having and to see the imagery that he has of Sancho's uh, of Sancho's land and the way he treats his slaves and the way people are treated because of their income status mm-hmm. um, or their position in this feudal system to be able to draw that allegory like it gives me the perspective not just of how they viewed their culture at this point in time but also how those sentiments echo mm-hmm over the course of generations and decades as we have experienced. And so that's why I'm like, I'm actually very, in, I mean, I'm glad that you explained it this way. Mm-hmm. We've come under the understanding that we can learn a lot more about where, where the world is and how it operates through cinema, because it's a far better tool than we've been led to believe by our parents yeah. <laughs> or by teachers in our lives, unless we go to actual film schools yeah. or whatever. Um, and that's why, it doesn't. It behooves you to go beyond your Michael Bay perimeters or your Steven Spielberg perimeters yeah. because not only are you seeing what influences those guys, these directors that we revere, that we made into corporate conglomerates of their own yeah. making, like George Lucas is a brand at this point. It starts with a lot of love for cinema that is not in his own territory yeah. and not in his own country. Yeah. Um, now, but we're talking about the East and I got to tell you, like there's one that it was, is going to sound the most obvious that Terrence Malick does a lot of inner reflection in his films. And I'm not a big Terrence Malick fan at all. Like I, 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 I am bored to death by the tree of life. I'm sorry, cinematographers. I'm just bored by it. I, I, I get it. Mm -hmm. There's dinosaurs in it. I get it. Yeah. But 
he is very good at looking inward in a way that does force me to challenge myself. And that's why I look, look at Mizuguchi as as a good gateway for early cinema fans to be like, see, this is where we start getting introspective. Mm-hmm. Because without that introspection, you can't have the groundbreaking cinema that we shower with awards at award yeah. season yeah. at the Palm at the at the Cannes Film Festival at mm-hmm. Venice. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it, the the importance of this discussion ultimately lies in the fact that we live in a world now where. Film is divided into strange, strange camps. Yeah. Uh, you are either a uh, a blockbustery franchise fan, mm-hmm. or you're a film Twitter stan, yeah. um, or you're a, a cheesy movie head, or yeah. you're like there's several different factions, yeah. much like several different territories in feudal Japan. We're going to bring it full circle, Zach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. I, I know, like it's such a such a great strong allegory. I'm sure I'm going to win the Pulitzer, uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> but. Like, um, and not for anything of substantial value, just for this stupid statement. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it is true. There is so many factions within this that it seems like a lot of things get thrown off to the wayside for their actual importance in favor of, well, this cinema is more important than this cinema. And it's like, well, both can do the same thing. I mean, this is a epic kind of scaled film, Sancho, but it's so focused in intimacy. <laughs> Like, but the scale is so large visually. Yeah. Like, it, I'm kind of amazed by the scale of this film and how much of it must have been shot with a combination of stage and live environment. Yeah. Um, to the point where I'm just like, wow, he's able to do both. Yeah. That's really wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know I kind of rambled on there for the last couple of minutes, but like, it, it's it's very hard. I texted you. Like, yeah. I, I was just like, hey, man, Mizuguchi might be my guy right now. Yeah. <laughs> It's him and the Marx Brothers. They're both both M's. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so, Henry, thank you for coming down to talk about Sancho the Bailiff. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that you were able to say what you wanted to say yeah. about this film and Miyazaguchi and also the thing that you've been able to bring to the Real Nerds podcast, I think, um, that you've also brought here today is uh, another gateway for people to think about film mm-hmm. um, because I don't want people to think about it as just something that they watch on Netflix for two hours mm-hmm. and then shut off and masturbate and go to bed. Yeah. I want them to actually understand not even just from an art form perspective. Like, do you understand why these things are still around? Mm-hmm. And I think with your love of foreign film and your love of film in general, mm-hmm. because like, I mean, you're, you and I fall into a similar camp where we appreciate something like Sancho the Bailiff, but mm-hmm. we are also going to watch something like the movie Jiu-Jitsu, yeah. <laughs> which was just reviewed on that on the other show. And yeah. I, 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 yeah, but I had fun with parts of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we are able to appreciate it on both camps and to understand where certain things we enjoy today come from within the context of things from other lands, I think is very important, especially since the world we lived in the past four years has been stupidly discouraging international cooperation. Mm -hmm. And so Henry is very much our foreign ambassador uh, within the context of yesteryear Ballyhoo review. He is here to remind you that there is more than just mom and apple pie. There is also sometimes sad swords. (laughs) 
Um, and then, um, Henry, I want you to go ahead and tell us where can we find you on the internet? Because you are not a social media stand. That not is really for a social sure. media guy, yeah. No, uh, not. My YouTube channel, Join uh, the Scenery. You can yeah. find me there. Uh, letterboxd, uh, letterboxd, uh, my username is dark Americana. Mm-hmm. You can find me that way. Um, which, uh, yeah, just don't, don't, uh, well, I don't know if you've changed your top four on letterboxd. Uh, well, I top four recently, I think I did change them to actual films. Um, <laughs> please explain it to the ir- audience. Ironically, <laughs> uh, well, I used to have, uh, my top four would be Dude Where's My Car, Space Jam, the live action, the first live action Scooby Doo film. And then the classic uh, monkey film, uh, Dunstan checks in, and so I've changed it recently to actual, uh, yeah, actual, films I actual like, movies. But, uh, I remember seeing those on your letterbox, and I was just like, "Well, it, it takes all kinds of people." At a certain point, you get tired of going to your page every day and seeing Sean William Scott staring back at you. You're just and like, so, "There's got to be more. To, there's got to be a better way." It's, it's just Robert Mitchum, and then that's that's that. So, yes, exactly. Like, which I'm glad that Mitchum's on there. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, it, it, it's. I mean, you know, like mine. Mine hasn't changed since I've opened it, but mm-hmm. there is like that thing of just like you know, like maybe. Maybe one of these days, Jackie Brown won't be my favorite film of all time. You know, you know maybe Casablanca will, will switch with it. <laughs> there you go. I mean, the four films will still stay there, Henry. Like, I they're mean, not Fritz Long's anywhere. M used to be on my top four, and now it's my top six. And so. actually, glad you brought that up because that's a film that I'd love to get you on mic for. No, but it, it's a, it's that. an obvious example and go-to um, yeah. within the context of early cinema. Oh yeah. Um, but also it would be a great chance to talk about Peter Laurie <laughs> yeah. because this is where I might be able to school you on some stuff. <laughs> Fun fact, I went to uh, a museum in the art museum in California uh-huh. when I was young and I, my mom was looking at art and I got bored. So I passed out in this one room that had a couch in it. <laughs> and when I, and when I woke up, it turns out the room I fell asleep in was the screening room. Mm-hmm. And when I woke up, they were, were showing M and that's how I first saw it. I woke up to M, and that's how I saw M for the first time. So, like, how old were you, would you say? 13? 13? Yeah. Well, so you're 13, you just wake up in this strange room, and then Peter Laurie as a child murderer is pleading for his life in front of a mob. Yeah, I was <laughs> like, oh, wow, I guess this is what... <laughs> this is well, art, I guess. So. You know how you woke up, you heard somebody whistling in the hall of the Mountain King. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> and you're just like... Huh? Oh yeah. What's that M on the back of his shirt? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? <laughs> um, but yes, chewing the scenery is a fantastic YouTube series that you host, that you put a lot of production into. That I, <laughs> I'm planning on. Well, we, things change, but uh, the current plan I've not uploaded in a little bit. Yeah, this uh, this episode will probably come out in about January or early February. Things so will probably be up by then. Yeah. But uh, by that point, hopefully, what's happened is uh, I've started an official season one where I'll be going over in depth. Japanese cinema from the uh, Ben Sheet all the way up to like Takeshi Mike and so this so so if if it's if it's already started at this point this will be a good supplemental piece of material for all you guys out there who have been clamoring for that but I would argue um, if if it hasn't come up to this point go to the page anyway because Mm -hmm. um, you did one on Korean cinema which has been fascinating and you told me a story about. One oh, of the yeah. producers of Three Ninjas that yeah. I, 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 wow. Yeah. Like, I, I had no idea. You texted it to me before the video went up, and I'm like, Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. Um, but it's a fascinating story about yeah. propaganda filmmaking, to uh, say the a least. A Kim Jong-il production is a great book that's about that. So. Yeah, I, I I found that yeah. in, while searching through the, the Amazonosphere, yeah. and I'm like, I, I got to pick this up. It's on my wish list now. Yeah. Um, but... um. 
the other one that you did, which I thought was very, very fascinating, and also another point pointed area towards empathy, was uh, talking about the breakdown of L- LGBTQ yeah. re- representation in cinema, yeah. which I think is a, a conversation that I'm definitely ignorant of. And I liked that you provided bullet point for it, essentially, to basically yeah. break it down to the simplest terms so that I can go forward and look at other films of that nature. If, if you've not seen the video, the full title of the video is Queer Cinema for Straights. Yeah. So it's it's designed for like very novice people. It's very uh, it's very designed to talk to me and say like Zach, we know that you're a kind person, but here's how you can be kinder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so. like and uh and and also the one if you're looking for a a bit of a more silly-ish affair, but also very sincere as you did break down Disney Channel films by representation films by uh diversity yeah. and that that one i was it's not that it's funny it's just that it's it you're first taken aback by how serious you took it yeah but then you <laughs> actually start breaking it down and you start realizing how the disney diversification chart is all over the fucking place yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. in, a, in a very strange way it's not yeah. like it's not like unadmirable but it's just very strange yeah um uh, and then also you did a quarantine one where <laughs> quarantine one was fun. Yeah. The quarantine one was fun. Yeah, you 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 really have fun with it, and I I I, I can't wait for you to keep doing more with it. Yeah. It's gonna rock, and you know we've talked about different things that you want to do going yeah. forward within this. Um, but that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review International Edition. Um, you can uh, find more about Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review on our social media page at Ballyhoo Review Pod um, and on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod. Um, and on the next episode, I believe I will be talking uh, some David Lean. Ooh, that'll be fun. Uh, we'll talk about David Lean and specifically the movie Summertime. Um, but uh, until next time, guys, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. <laughs>